Section seven of Tales of the Jazz Age by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Don W. Jenkins. The Diamond as Big as the Ritz. Part two. Eight. Every day Mr. Washington and the two young men went hunting or fishing in the deep forest or played golf around the somnolent course, games which John diplomatically allowed his host to win or swam in the mountain coolness of the lake john found mr washington a somewhat exacting personality utterly uninterested in any ideas or opinions except his own mrs washington was aloof and reserved at all times she was apparently indifferent to her two daughters and entirely absorbed in her son percy with whom she held interminable conversations in rapid spanish at dinner jasmine the elder daughter resembled kismen in appearance except that she was somewhat bow-legged and terminated in large hands and feet but was utterly unlike her in temperament her favorite books had to do with poor girls who kept house for widowed fathers john learned from kismen that jasmine had never recovered from the shock and disappointment caused her by the termination of the world war just as she was about to start for europe as a canteen expert she had even pined away for a time and braddock washington had taken steps to promote a new war in the balkans but she had seen a photograph of some wounded serbian soldiers and lost interest in the whole proceedings but percy and kismen seemed to have inherited the arrogant attitude in all its harsh magnificence from their father a chaste and consistent selfishness ran like a pattern through their every idea john was enchanted by the wonders of the chateau and the valley braddock washington so percy told him had caused to be kidnapped a landscape gardener an architect a designer of state settings and a french decadent poet left over from the last century he had put his entire force of negroes at their disposal guaranteed to supply them with any materials that the world could offer and left them to work out some ideas of their own but one by one they had shown their uselessness the decadent poet had at once begun bewailing his separation from the boulevards in spring he made some vague remarks about spices apes and ivories but said nothing that was of any practical value the stage designer on his part wanted to make the whole valley a series of tricks and sensational effects a state of things that the washingtons would soon have grown tired of and as for the architect and the landscape gardener they thought only in terms of convention they must make this like this and that like that but they had at least solved the problem of what was to be done with them they all went mad early one morning after spending the night in a single room trying to agree upon the location of a fountain and were now confined comfortably in an insane asylum at westport connecticut but inquired john curiously who did plan all your wonderful reception rooms and halls and approaches and bathrooms well answered percy i blush to tell you but it was a moving picture fella he was the only man we found who was used to playing with an unlimited amount of money though he did tuck his napkin in his collar and couldn't read or write as august drew to a close john began to regret that he must soon go back to school he and kismen had decided to elope the following june it would be nicer to be married here kismen confessed but of course i could never get father's permission to marry you at all next to that i'd rather elope it's terrible for wealthy people to be married in america at present 
they always have to send out bulletins to the press saying that they're going to be married in remnants when what they mean is just a peck of old second-hand pearls and some used lace worn once by the empress eugenie i know agreed john fervently when i was visiting the schlitzer murphys the eldest daughter gwendolen married a man whose father owns half of west virginia she wrote home saying what a tough struggle she was carrying on on his salary as a bank clerk and then she ended up by saying that thank god i have four good maids anyhow and that helps a little it's absurd commented kismen think of the millions and millions of people in the world laborers and all who get along with only two maids one afternoon late in august a chance remark of kismen's changed the face of the entire situation and threw john into a state of terror they were in their favorite grove and between kisses john was indulging in some romantic forebodings which he fancied added poignancy to their relations sometimes i think we'll never marry he said sadly you're too wealthy too magnificent no one as rich as you are can be like other girls i should marry the daughter of some well-to-do wholesale hardware man from omaha or sioux city and be content with her half million i knew the daughter of a wholesale hardware man once remarked kismen i don't think you'd have been contented with her she was a friend of my sister's she visited here oh then you've had other guests exclaimed john in surprise kismen seemed to regret her words oh yes she said hurriedly we've had a few but aren't you wasn't your father afraid they'd talk outside oh to some extent to some extent she answered let's talk about something pleasanter but john's curiosity was aroused something pleasanter he demanded what's unpleasant about that weren't they nice girls to his great surprise kismen began to weep yes th that's the whole th trouble i grew quite attached to some of them so did jasmine but she kept inviting them anyway i couldn't understand it a dark suspicion was born in john's heart do you mean that they told and your father had them removed worse than that she muttered brokenly father took no chances and jasmine kept writing them to come and they had such a good time she was overcome by a paroxysm of grief stunned with the horror of this revelation john sat there open-mouthed feeling the nerves of his body twitter like so many sparrows perched upon his spinal column now i've told you and i shouldn't have she said calming suddenly and drying her dark blue eyes do you mean to say that your father had them murdered before they left she nodded in august usually or early in september it's only natural for us to get all the pleasure out of them that we can first how abominable how why i must be going crazy did you really admit that i did interrupted kismen shrugging her shoulders we can't very well imprison them like those aviators where they'd be a continual reproach to us every day and it's always been made easier for jasmine and me because father had it done sooner than we expected in that way we avoided any farewell scene so you murdered them ah uh, cried john it was done very nicely they were drugged while they were asleep and their families were always told that they died of scarlet fever in butte but i fail to understand why you kept on inviting them i didn't burst out kismen i never invited one jasmine did and they always had a very good time she'd give them the nicest presents toward the last i shall probably have visitors too i'll harden up to it we can't let such an inevitable thing as death stand in the way of enjoying life while we have it think of how lonesome it'd be out here if we never had any one 
why father and mother have sacrificed some of their best friends just as we have and so cried john accusingly and so you were letting me make love to you and pretending to return it and talking about marriage all the time knowing perfectly well that i'd never get out of here alive no she protested passionately not any more i did at first you were here i couldn't help that and i thought your last days might as well be pleasant for both of us but then i fell in love with you and i'm honestly sorry you're going to going to be put away though i'd rather you'd be put away than ever kiss another girl oh you would would you cried john ferociously much rather besides i've always heard that a girl can have more fun with a man whom she knows she can never marry oh why did i tell you i've probably spoiled your whole good time now and we were really enjoying things when you didn't know it i knew it would make things sort of depressing for you oh you did did you john's voice trembled with anger i've heard about enough of this if you haven't any more pride and decency than to have an affair with a fellow that you know isn't much better than a corpse i don't want to have any more to do with you you're not a corpse she protested in horror you're not a corpse i won't have you saying that i kissed a corpse i said nothing of the sort you did you said i kissed a corpse i didn't their voices had risen but upon a sudden interruption they both subsided into immediate silence footsteps were coming along the path in their direction and a moment later the rose bushes were parted displaying braddock washington whose intelligent eyes set in his good-looking vacuous face were peering in at them who kissed the corpse he demanded in obvious disapproval nobody answered kismen quickly we were just joking what are you two doing here anyhow he demanded gruffly kismen you ought to be to be reading or playing golf with your sister go read go play golf don't let me find you here when i come back then he bowed at john and went up the path see said kismen crossly when he was out of hearing you've spoiled it all we can never meet any more he won't let me meet you he'd have you poisoned if he thought we were in love we're not any more cried john fiercely so he can set his mind at rest upon that moreover don't fool yourself that i'm going to stay around here inside of six hours i'll be over those mountains if i have to gnaw a passage through them and on my way east they had both got to their feet and at this remark kismen came close and put her arm through his i'm going too you must be crazy of course i'm going she interrupted impatiently you most certainly are not you very well she said quietly we'll catch up with father and talk it over with him defeated john mustered a sickly smile very well dearest he agreed with pale and unconvincing affection we'll go together his love for her returned and settled placidly on his heart she was his she would go with him to share his dangers he put his arms about her and kissed her fervently after all she loved him she had saved him in fact discussing the matter they walked slowly back toward the chateau they decided that since braddock washington had seen them together they had best depart the next night nevertheless john's lips were unusually dry at dinner and he nervously emptied a great spoonful of peacock soup into his left lung he had to be carried into the turquoise and sable card-room and pounded on the back by one of the under-butlers which percy considered a great joke nine long after midnight john's body gave a nervous jerk he sat suddenly upright staring into the veils of somnolence that draped the room through the squares of blue darkness that were his open windows he had heard a faint far-away sound that died upon a bed of wind before identifying itself on his memory clouded with uneasy dreams 
but the sharp noise that had succeeded it was nearer was just outside the room the click of a turned knob a footstep a whisper he could not tell a hard lump gathered in the pit of his stomach and his whole body ached in the moment that he strained agonizingly to hear then one of the veils seemed to dissolve and he saw a vague figure standing by the door a figure only faintly limbed and blocked in upon the darkness mingled so with the folds of the drapery as to seem distorted like a reflection from a dirty pane of glass with a sudden movement of fright or resolution john pressed the button by his bedside and the next moment he was sitting in the green sunken bath of the adjoining room waked into alertness by the shock of the cold water which half filled it he sprang out and his wet pajamas scattering a heavy trickle of water behind him ran for the aquamarine door which he knew led out on to the ivory landing of the second floor the door opened noiselessly a single crimson lamp burning in a great dome above lit the magnificent sweep of the carved stairways with a poignant beauty for a moment john hesitated appalled by the silent splendor massed about him seeming to envelop in its gigantic folds and contours the solitary drenched little figure shivering upon the ivory landing then simultaneously two things happened the door of his own sitting-room swung open precipitating three naked negroes into the hall and as john swayed in wild terror toward the stairway another door slid back in the wall on the other side of the corridor and john saw braddock washington standing in the lighted lift wearing a fur coat and a pair of riding-boots which reached to his knees and displayed above the glow of his rose-coloured pyjamas on the instant the three negroes john had never seen any of them before and it flashed through his mind that they must be the professional executioners paused in their movement toward john and turned expectantly to the man in the lift who burst out with an imperious command get in there all three of you quick as hell then within the instant the three negroes darted into the cage the oblong light was blotted out as the lift door slid shut and john was again alone in the hall he slumped weakly down against an ivory stair it was apparent that something portentous had occurred something which for the moment at least had postponed his own petty disaster what was it had the negroes risen in revolt had the aviators forced aside the iron bars of the grating or had the men of fish stumbled blindly through the hills and gazed with bleak joyless eyes upon the gaudy valley john did not know he heard a faint whirr of air as the lift whizzed up again and then a moment later as it descended it was probable that percy was hurrying to his father's assistance and it occurred to john that this was his opportunity to join kismen and plan an immediate escape he waited until the lift had been silent for several minutes shivering a little with the night cool that whipped in through his wet pajamas he returned to his room and dressed himself quickly then he mounted a long flight of stairs and turned down the corridor carpeted with russian sable which led to kismen's suite the door of her sitting-room was open and the lamps were lighted kismen in an angora kimono stood near the window of the room in a listening attitude and as john entered noiselessly she turned toward him oh it's you she whispered crossing the room to him did you hear them i heard your father's slaves in my no she interrupted excitedly aeroplanes aeroplanes perhaps that was the sound that woke me there are at least a dozen i saw one a few moments ago dead against the moon the guard back by the cliff fired his rifle and that's what roused father we're going to open on them right away are they here on purpose yes it's that italian who got away simultaneously with her last word a succession of sharp cracks tumbled in through the open window kismen uttered a little cry 
took a penny with fumbling fingers from a box on her dresser and ran to one of the electric lights in an instant the entire chateau was in darkness she had blown out the fuse come on she cried to him we'll go up to the roof garden and watch it from there drawing a cape about her she took his hand and they found their way out the door it was only a step to the tower lift and as she pressed the button that shot them upward he put his arms around her in the darkness and kissed her mouth romance had come to john unger at last a minute later they had stepped out upon the star-white platform above under the misty moon sliding in and out of the patches of cloud that eddied below it floated a dozen dark-winged bodies in a constant circling course from here and there in the valley flashes of fire leaped toward them followed by sharp detonations kismen clapped her hands with pleasure which a moment later turned to dismay as the aeroplanes at some prearranged signal began to release their bombs and the whole of the valley became a panorama of deep reverberate sound and lurid light before long the aim of the attackers became concentrated upon the points where the anti-aircraft guns were situated and one of them was almost immediately reduced to a giant cinder to lie smouldering in a park of rose bushes kismen begged john you'll be glad when i tell you that this attack came on the eve of my murder if i hadn't heard that guard shoot off his gun back by the pass i should now be stone dead i can't hear you cried kismen intent on the scene before her you'll have to talk louder i simply said shouted john that we'd better get out before they begin to shell the chateau suddenly the whole portico of the negro quarters cracked asunder a geyser of flame shot up from under the colonnades and great fragments of jagged marble were hurled as far as the borders of the lake there go fifty thousand dollars worth of slaves cried kismen at pre-war prices so few americans have any respect for property john renewed his efforts to compel her to leave the aim of the aeroplanes was becoming more precise minute by minute and only two of the anti-aircraft guns were still retaliating it was obvious that the garrison encircled with fire could not hold out much longer come on cried john pulling kismen's arm we've got to go do you realize that those aviators will kill you without question if they find you she consented reluctantly we'll have to wake jasmine she said as they hurried toward the lift then she added in a sort of childish delight we'll be poor won't we like people in books and i'll be an orphan and utterly free free and poor what fun she stopped and raised her lips to him in a delighted kiss it's impossible to be both together said john grimly people have found that out and i should choose to be free is preferable of the two as an extra caution you'd better dump the contents of your jewel box into your pockets ten minutes later the two girls met john in the dark corridor and they descended to the main floor of the chateau passing for the last time through the magnificence of the splendid halls they stood for a moment out on the terrace watching the burning negro quarters and the flaming embers of two planes which had fallen on the other side of the lake a solitary gun was still keeping up a sturdy popping and the attackers seemed timorous about descending lower but sent their thunderous fireworks in a circle around it until any chance shot might annihilate its ethiopian crew john and the two sisters passed down the marble steps turned sharply to the left and began to ascend a narrow path that wound like a garter about the diamond mountain kismen knew a heavily wooded spot halfway up where they could lie concealed and yet be able to observe the wild night in the valley finally to make an escape when it should be necessary along a secret path laid in a rocky gully Ten. it was three o'clock when they attained their destination 
the obliging and phlegmatic jasmine fell off to sleep immediately leaning against the trunk of a large tree while john and kismin sat his arm around her and watched the desperate ebb and flow of the dying battle among the ruins of a vista that had been a garden spot that morning shortly after four o'clock the last remaining gun gave out a clanging sound and went out of action in a swift tongue of red smoke though the moon was down they saw that the flying bodies were circling closer to the earth when the planes had made certain that the beleaguered possessed no further resources they would land and the dark and glittering rain of the washingtons would be over with the cessation of the firing the valley grew quiet the embers of the two aeroplanes glowed like the eyes of some monster crouching in the grass the chateau stood dark and silent beautiful without light as it had been beautiful in the sun while the woody rattles of nemesis filled the air above with a growing and receding complaint then john perceived that kismin like her sister had fallen sound asleep it was long after four when he became aware of footsteps along the path they had lately followed and he waited in breathless silence until the persons to whom they belonged had passed the vantage point he occupied there was a faint stir in the air now that was not of human origin and the dew was cold he knew that the dawn would break soon john waited until the steps had gone a safe distance up the mountain and were inaudible then he followed about halfway to the steep summit the trees fell away and a hard saddle of rock spread itself over the diamond beneath just before he reached this point he slowed down his pace warned by an animal sense that there was life just ahead of him coming to a high boulder he lifted his head gradually above its edge his curiosity was rewarded this is what he saw braddock washington was standing there motionless silhouetted against the gray sky without sound or sign of life as the dawn came up out of the east lending a gold-green color to the earth it brought the solitary figure into insignificant contrast with the new day while john watched his host remained for a few moments absorbed in some inscrutable contemplation then he signalled to the two negroes who crouched at his feet to lift the burden which lay between them as they struggled upright the first yellow beam of the sun struck through the innumerable prisms of an immense and exquisitely chiselled diamond and a white radiance was kindled that glowed upon the air like a fragment of the morning star the bearers staggered beneath its weight for a moment then their rippling muscles caught and hardened under the wet shine of their skins and the three figures were again motionless in their defiant impotency before the heavens after a while the white man lifted his head and slowly raised his arms in a gesture of attention as one who would call a great crowd to hear but there was no crowd only the vast silence of the mountain and the sky broken by faint bird voices down among the trees the figure on the saddle of rock began to speak ponderously and with an inextinguishable pride you out there he cried in a trembling voice you there he paused his arms still uplifted his head held attentively as though he were expecting an answer john strained his eyes to see whether there might be men coming down the mountain but the mountain was bare of human life there was only sky and a mocking flute of wind along the treetops could washington be praying for a moment john wondered then the illusion passed there was something in the man's whole attitude antithetical to prayer oh you above there the voice was becoming strong and confident this was no forlorn supplication if anything there was in it a quality of monstrous condescension you there words too quickly uttered to be understood flowing one into the other john listened breathlessly 
catching a phrase here and there while the voice broke off resumed broke off again now strong and argumentative now coloured with a slow puzzled impatience then a conviction commenced to dawn upon the single listener and as realization crept over him a spray of quick blood rushed through his arteries braddock washington was offering a bribe to god that was it there was no doubt the diamond in the arms of his slaves was some advance sample a promise of more to follow that john perceived after a time was the thread running through his sentences prometheus enriched was calling to witness forgotten sacrifices forgotten rituals prayers obsolete before the birth of christ for a while his discourse took the form of reminding god of this gift or that which divinity had deigned to accept from men great churches if he would rescue cities from the plague gifts of myrrh and gold of human lives and beautiful women and captive armies of children and queens of beasts of the forest and field sheep and goats harvests and cities whole conquered lands that had been offered up in lust or blood for his appeasal buying a mead's worth of alleviation from the divine wrath and now he braddock washington emperor of diamonds king and priest of the age of gold arbiter of splendour and luxury would offer up a treasure such as princes before him had never dreamed of offer it up not in suppliance but in pride he would give to god he continued getting down to specifications the greatest diamond in the world this diamond would be cut with many more thousand facets than there were leaves on a tree and yet the whole diamond would be shaped with the perfection of a stone no bigger than a fly many men would work upon it for many years it would be set in a great dome of beaten gold wonderfully carved and equipped with gates of opal and crusted sapphire in the middle would be hollowed out a chapel presided over by an altar of iridescent decomposing ever-changing radium which would burn out the eyes of any worshipper who lifted up his head from prayer and on this altar there would be slain for the amusement of the divine benefactor any victim he should choose even though it should be the greatest and most powerful man alive in return he asked only a simple thing a thing that for god would be absurdly easy only that matters should be as they were yesterday at this hour and that they should so remain so very simple let but the heavens open swallowing these men and their aeroplanes and then close again let him have his slaves once more restored to life and well there was no one else with whom he had ever needed to treat or bargain he doubted only whether he had made his bribe big enough god had his price of course god was made in man's image so it had been said he must have his price and the price would be rare no cathedral whose building consumed many years no pyramid constructed by ten thousand workmen would be like this cathedral this pyramid he paused here that was his proposition everything would be up to specifications and there was nothing vulgar in his assertion that it would be cheap at the price he implied that providence could take it or leave it as he approached the end his sentences became broken became short and uncertain and his body seemed tense seemed strained to catch the slightest pressure or whisper of life in the spaces around him his hair had turned gradually white as he talked and now he lifted his head high to heavens like a prophet of old magnificently mad then as john stared in giddy fascination it seemed to him that a curious phenomenon took place somewhere around him it was as though the sky had darkened for an instant as though there had been a sudden murmur in a gust of wind 
a sound of faraway trumpets a sighing like the rustle of a great silken robe for a time the whole of nature round about partook of this darkness the bird's song ceased the trees were still and far over the mountain there was a mutter of dull menacing thunder that was all the wind died along the tall grasses of the valley the dawn and the day resumed their place in a time and the risen sun sent hot waves of yellow mist that made its path bright before it the leaves laughed in the sun and their laughter shook until each bough was like a girl's school in fairyland god had refused to accept the bribe for another moment john watched the triumph of the day then turning he saw a flutter of brown down by the lake then another flutter then another like the dance of golden angels alighting from the clouds the aeroplanes had come to earth john slid off the boulder and ran down the side of the mountain to the clump of trees where the two girls were awake and waiting for him kismin sprang to her feet the jewels in her pockets jingling a question on her parted lips but instinct told john that there was no time for words they must get off the mountain without losing a moment he seized a hand of each and in silence they threaded the tree trunks washed with light now and with the rising mist behind them from the valley came no sound at all except the complaint of the peacocks far away and the pleasant of morning when they had gone about half a mile they avoided the parkland and entered a narrow path that led over the next rise of ground at the highest point of this they paused and turned around their eyes rested upon the mountainside they had just left oppressed by some dark sense of tragic impendency clear against the sky a broken white-haired man was slowly descending the steep slope followed by two gigantic and emotionless negroes who carried a burden between them which still flashed and glittered in the sun halfway down two other figures joined them john could see that they were mrs washington and her son upon whose arm she leaned the aviators had clambered from their machines to the sweeping lawn in front of the chateau and with rifles in hand were starting up the diamond mountain in skirmish formation but the little group of five which had formed farther up and was engrossing all the watchers attention had stopped upon a ledge of rock the negroes stooped and pulled up what appeared to be a trap-door in the side of the mountain into this they all disappeared the white-haired man first then his wife and son finally the two negroes the glittering tips of whose jewelled headdresses caught the sun for a moment before the trap-door descended and engulfed them all kismin clutched john's arm oh she cried wildly where are they going what are they going to do it must be some underground way of escape a little scream from the two girls interrupted his sentence don't you see sobbed kismin hysterically the mountain is wired even as she spoke john put up his hands to shield his sight before their eyes the whole surface of the mountain had changed suddenly to a dazzling burning yellow which showed up through the jacket of turf as light shows through a human hand for a moment the intolerable glow continued and then like an extinguished filament it disappeared revealing a black waste from which blue smoke arose slowly carrying off with it what remained of vegetation and of human flesh of the aviators there was left neither blood nor bone they were consumed as completely as the five souls who had gone inside simultaneously and with an immense concussion the chateau literally threw itself into the air bursting into flaming fragments as it rose and then tumbling back upon itself in a smoking pile that lay projecting half into the water of the lake there was no fire what smoke there was drifted off mingling with the sunshine and for a few minutes longer a powdery dust of marble drifted from the great featureless pile that had once been the house of jewels there was no more sound and the three people were alone in the valley 
11. At sunset John and his two companions reached the huge cliff which had marked the boundaries of the Washington's dominion, and, looking back, found the valley tranquil and lovely in the dusk. They sat down to finish the food which Jasmine had brought with her in a basket. There, she said, as she spread the tablecloth and put the sandwiches in a neat pile upon it, don't they look tempting? I always think that food tastes better outdoors. With that remark, remarked Kisman, Jasmine enters the middle class. Now, said John eagerly, turn out your pocket and let's see what jewels you brought along. If you made a good selection, we three ought to live comfortably all the rest of our lives. Obediently, Kisman put her hand in her pocket and tossed two handfuls of glittering stones before him. Not so bad, cried John enthusiastically. They aren't very big, but hello. His expression changed as he held one of them up to the declining sun. Why, these aren't diamonds. There's something the matter. My golly, exclaimed Kisman with a startled look. What an idiot I am. Why, these are rhinestones, cried John. I know, she broke into a laugh. I opened the wrong drawer. They belonged on the dress of a girl who visited Jasmine. I got her to give them to me in exchange for diamonds. I'd never seen anything but precious stones before. And this is what you brought? I'm afraid so. She fingered the brilliants wistfully. I think I like these better. I'm a little tired of diamonds. Very well, said John gloomily. We'll have to live in Hades, and you will grow old telling incredulous women that you got the wrong drawer. Unfortunately, your father's bank books were consumed with him. Well, what's the matter with Hades? If I come home with a wife at my age, my father is just as liable as not to cut me off with a hot coal, as they say down there. Jasmine spoke up. I love washing, she said quietly. I have always washed my own handkerchiefs. I'll take in laundry and support you both. Do they have washwomen in Hades? asked Kisman innocently. Of course, answered John. It's just like anywhere else. I thought perhaps it was too hot to wear any clothes. John laughed just try it he suggested they'll run you out before you're half started will father be there she asked john turned to her in astonishment your father is dead he replied somberly why should he go to hades you have it confused with another place that was abolished long ago after supper they folded up the tablecloth and spread their blankets for the night what a dream it was kisman sighed gazing up at the stars how strange it seems to be here with one dress and a penniless fiance under the stars she repeated i never noticed the stars before i always thought of them as great big diamonds that belonged to someone now they frighten me they make me feel that it was all a dream all my youth it was a dream said john quietly everybody's youth is a dream a form of chemical madness how pleasant then to be insane so i'm told said john gloomily i don't know any longer at any rate let us love for a while for a year or two you and me that's a form of divine drunkenness that we can all try. There are only diamonds in the whole world, diamonds and perhaps the shabby gift of disillusion. Well, I have that last, and I will make the usual nothing of it, he shivered. Turn up your coat collar, little girl. The night's full of chill, and you'll get pneumonia. His was a great sin who first invented consciousness. Let us lose it for a few hours. So wrapping himself in his blanket, he fell off to sleep. End of section 7. Read by Don W. Jenkins, Rancho San Diego, California, shaggybark.blogspot.com.
Section eight of Tales of the Jazz Age by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Don W. Jenkins. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. One. As long ago as eighteen sixty, it was the proper thing to be born at home. At present, so I am told, the high gods of medicine have decreed that the first cries of the young shall be uttered upon the anaesthetic air of a hospital, preferably a fashionable one. So young Mr. and Mrs. Roger Button were fifty years ahead of their style when they decided, one day in the summer of 1860, that their first baby should be born in a hospital. Whether this anachronism had any bearing upon the astonishing history I am about to set down will never be known. I shall tell you what occurred and let you judge for yourself. The Roger Buttons held an enviable position, both social and financial, in antebellum Baltimore. They were related to the this family and the that family, which, as every southerner knew, entitled them to membership in that enormous peerage which largely populated the Confederacy. This was their first experience with the charming old custom of having babies. Mr. Button was naturally nervous. He hoped it would be a boy so that he could be sent to Yale College in Connecticut, at which institution Mr. Button himself had been known for four years by the somewhat obvious nickname of Cuff. On the September morning consecrated to the enormous event, he arose nervously at six o'clock, dressed himself, adjusted an impeccable stock, and hurried forth through the streets of baltimore to the hospital to determine whether the darkness of the night had borne a new life upon its bosom when he was approximately a hundred yards from the maryland private hospital for ladies and gentlemen he saw dr keene the family physician descending the front steps rubbing his hands together with a washing movement as all doctors are required to do by the unwritten ethics of their profession Mr. Roger Button, the president of Roger Button & Company, Wholesale Hardware, began to run toward Dr. Keene with much less dignity than was expected from a southern gentleman of that picturesque period. "'Dr. Keene!' he called. "'Oh, Dr. Keene!' The doctor heard him, faced around, and stood waiting, a curious expression settling on his harsh, medicinal face, as Mr. Button drew near what happened demanded mr button as he came up in a gasping rush what was it how is she a boy who is it what talk sense said dr keene sharply he appeared somewhat irritated is the child born begged mr button dr keene frowned why yes i suppose so after a fashion again he threw a curious glance at mr button is my wife all right yes is it a boy or a girl here now cried dr keene in a perfect passion of irritation i'll ask you to go and see for yourself outrageous he snapped the last word out in almost one syllable then he turned away muttering do you imagine a case like this will help my professional reputation one more would ruin me ruin anybody what's the matter demanded mr button appalled triplets no not triplets answered the doctor cuttingly what's more you can go and see for yourself and get another doctor i've brought you into the world young man and i've been physician to your family for forty years but i'm through with you i don't want to see you or any of your relatives ever again good-bye then he turned sharply and without another word climbed into his phaeton which was waiting at the curbstone and drove severely away 
mr button stood there upon the sidewalk stupefied and trembling from head to foot what horrible mishap had occurred he had suddenly lost all desire to go to the maryland private hospital for ladies and gentlemen it was with the greatest difficulty that a moment later he forced himself to mount the steps and enter the front door a nurse was sitting behind a desk in the opaque gloom of the hall swallowing his shame mr button approached her good morning she remarked looking up at him pleasantly good morning i-i am mr button at this a look of utter terror spread itself over the girl's face she rose to her feet and seemed about to fly from the hall restraining herself only with the most apparent difficulty i want to see my child said mr button the nurse gave a little scream oh of course she cried hysterically upstairs right upstairs go up she pointed the direction and mr button bathed in cool perspiration turned falteringly and began to mount to the second floor in the upper hall he addressed another nurse who approached him basin in hand i'm mr button he managed to articulate i want to see my clank the basin clattered to the floor and rolled in the direction of the stairs clank clank it began a methodical descent as if sharing in the general terror which this gentleman provoked i want to see my child mr button almost shrieked he was on the verge of collapse clank the basin reached the first floor the nurse regained control of herself and threw mr button a look of hearty contempt all right mr button she agreed in a hushed voice very well but if you knew what a state it's put us all in this morning it's perfectly outrageous the hospital will never have a ghost of a reputation after hurry he cried hoarsely i can't stand this come this way then mr button he dragged himself after her at the end of a long hall they reached a room from which proceeded a variety of howls indeed a room which in later parlance would have been known as the crying room they entered well gasped mr button which is mine there said the nurse mr button's eyes followed her finger and this is what he saw wrapped in a voluminous white blanket and partly crammed into one of the cribs there sat an old man apparently about seventy years of age his sparse hair was almost white and from his chin dripped a long smoke-coloured beard which waved absurdly back and forth fanned by the breeze coming in at the window he looked up at mr button with dim faded eyes in which lurked a puzzled expression am i mad thundered mr button his terror resolving into rage is this some ghastly hospital joke it doesn't seem like a joke to us replied the nurse severely and i don't know whether you're mad or not but that is most certainly your child the cool perspiration redoubled on mr button's forehead he closed his eyes and then opening them looked again there was no mistake he was gazing at a man of threescore and ten a baby of threescore and ten a baby whose feet hung over the sides of the crib in which it was reposing the old man looked placidly from one to the other for a moment and then suddenly spoke in a cracked and ancient voice are you my father he demanded mr button and the nurse started violently because if you are went on the old man querulously i wish you'd get me out of this place or at least get them to put a comfortable rocker in here where in god's name did you come from who are you burst out mr button frantically i can't tell you exactly who i am replied the querulous whine 
because i've only been born a few hours but my last name is certainly button you lie you're an impostor the old man turned wearily to the nurse nice way to welcome a newborn child he complained in a weak voice tell him he's wrong why don't you you're wrong mr button said the nurse severely this is your child and you'll have to make the best of it we're going to ask you to take him home with you as soon as possible sometime today home repeated mr button incredulously yes we can't have him here we really can't you know i'm right glad of it whined the old man this is a fine place to keep a youngster of quiet tastes with all this yelling and howling i haven't been able to get a wink of sleep i asked for something to eat here his voice rose to a shrill note of protest and they brought me a bottle of milk mr button sank down upon a chair near his son and concealed his face in his hands my heavens he murmured in an ecstasy of horror what will people say what must i do you'll have to take him home insisted the nurse immediately a grotesque picture formed itself with dreadful clarity before the eyes of the tortured man a picture of himself walking through the crowded streets of the city with this appalling apparition stalking by his side i can't i can't he moaned people would stop to speak to him and what was he going to say he would have to introduce this this septuagenarian this is my son born early this morning and then the old man would gather his blanket around him and they would plod on past the bustling stores the slave market for a dark instant mr button wished passionately that his son was black past the luxurious houses of the residential district past the home for the aged come pull yourself together commanded the nurse see here the old man announced suddenly if you think i'm going to walk home in this blanket you're entirely mistaken babies always have blankets with a malicious crackle the old man held up a small white swaddling garment look he quavered this is what they had ready for me babies always wear those said the nurse primly well said the old man this baby's not going to wear anything in about two minutes this blanket itches they might have at least given me a sheet keep it on keep it on said mr button hurriedly he turned to the nurse what'll i do go down and buy your son some clothes mr button's son's voice followed him down into the hall and a cane father i want to have a cane mr button banged the outer door savagely Two good morning mr button said nervously to the clerk in the chesapeake dry goods company i want to buy some clothes for my child how old is your child sir about six hours answered mr button without due consideration baby's supply department in the rear why i don't think i'm not sure that's what i want it's he's an unusually large-sized child exceptionally uh large they have the largest child's sizes where is the boys department inquired mr button shifting his ground desperately he felt that the clerk must surely scent his shameful secret right here well he hesitated the notion of dressing his son in men's clothes was repugnant to him if say he could only find a very large boy's suit he might cut off that long and awful beard dye the white hair brown and thus managed to conceal the worst and to retain something of his own self-respect not to mention his position in baltimore society 
but a frantic inspection of the boys department revealed no suits to fit the newborn button he blamed the store of course in such cases it is the thing to blame the store how old did you say that boy of yours was demanded the clerk curiously he's sixteen oh i beg your pardon i thought you said six hours you'll find the youth's department in the next aisle mr button turned miserably away then he stopped brightened and pointed his finger toward a dressed dummy in the window display there he exclaimed i'll take that suit out there on the dummy the clerk stared why he protested that's not a child's suit at least it is but it's for fancy dress you could wear it yourself wrap it up insisted his customer nervously that's what i want the astonished clerk obeyed back at the hospital mr button entered the nursery and almost threw the package at his son here's your clothes he snapped out the old man untied the package and viewed the contents with a quizzical eye they look sort of funny to me he complained i don't want to be made a monkey of you've made a monkey of me retorted mr button fiercely never you mind how funny you look put them on or i'll i'll spank you he swallowed uneasily at the penultimate word feeling nevertheless that it was the proper thing to say all right father this with a grotesque simulation of filial respect you've lived longer you know best just as you say as before the sound of the word father caused mr button to start violently and hurry i'm hurrying father when his son was dressed mr button regarded him with depression the costume consisted of dotted socks pink pants and a belted blouse with wide white collar over the latter waved the long whitish beard drooping almost to the waist the effect was not good wait mr button seized the hospital shears and with three quick snaps amputated a large section of the beard but even with this improvement the ensemble fell far short of perfection the remaining brush of scraggly hair the watery eyes the ancient teeth seemed oddly out of tone with the gaiety of the costume mr button however was obdurate he held out his hand come along he said sternly his son took the hand trustingly what are you going to call me dad he quavered as they walked from the nursery just baby for a while till you think of a better name mr button grunted i don't know he answered harshly i think we'll call you methuselah three even after the new addition to the button family had had his hair cut short and then dyed to a sparse unnatural black had had his face shaved so close that it glistened and had been attired in small boy clothes made to order by a flabbergasted tailor it was impossible for button to ignore the fact that his son was a poor excuse for a first family baby despite his aged stoop benjamin button for it was by this name they called him instead of by the appropriate but invidious methuselah was five feet eight inches tall his clothes did not conceal this nor did the clipping and dyeing of his eyebrows disguise the fact that the eyes under were faded and watery and tired in fact the baby nurse who had been engaged in advance left the house after one look in a state of considerable indignation but mr button persisted in his unwavering purpose benjamin was a baby and a baby he should remain at first he declared that if benjamin didn't like warm milk he could go without food altogether but he was finally prevailed upon to allow his son bread and butter and even oatmeal by way of a compromise one day he brought home a rattle and giving it to benjamin insisted in no uncertain terms that he should play with it 
whereupon the old man took it with a weary expression and could be heard jingling it obediently at intervals throughout the day there can be no doubt though that the rattle bored him and that he found other and more soothing amusements when he was left alone for instance mr button discovered one day that during the preceding week he had smoked more cigars than ever before a phenomenon which was explained a few days later when entering the nursery unexpectedly he found the room full of faint blue haze and benjamin with a guilty expression on his face trying to conceal the butt of a dark havana this of course called for a severe spanking but mr button found that he could not bring himself to administer it he merely warned his son that he would stunt his growth nevertheless he persisted in his attitude he brought home lead soldiers he brought toy trains he brought large pleasant animals made of cotton and to perfect the illusion which he was creating for himself at least he passionately demanded of the clerk in the toy store whether the paint would come off the pink duck if the baby put it in his mouth but despite all his father's efforts benjamin refused to be interested he would steal down the back stairs and return to the nursery with a volume of the encyclopedia britannica over which he would pour through an afternoon while his cotton cows and his noah's ark were left neglected on the floor against such a stubbornness mr button's efforts were of little avail the sensation created in baltimore was at first prodigious what the mishap would have cost the buttons and their kinsfolk socially cannot be determined for the outbreak of the civil war drew the city's attention to other things a few people who were unfailingly polite racked their brains for compliments to give to the parents and finally hit upon the ingenious device of declaring that the baby resembled his grandfather a fact which due to the standard state of decay common to all men of seventy could not be denied mr and mrs roger button were not pleased and benjamin's grandfather was furiously insulted benjamin once he left the hospital took life as he found it several small boys were brought to see him and he spent a stiff jointed afternoon trying to work up an interest in tops and marbles he even managed quite accidentally to break a kitchen window with a stone from a slingshot a feat which secretly delighted his father thereafter benjamin contrived to break something every day but he did these things only because they were expected of him and because he was by nature obliging when his grandfather's initial antagonism wore off benjamin and that gentleman took enormous pleasure in one another's company they would sit for hours these two so far apart in age and experience and like old cronies discuss with tireless monotony the slow events of the day benjamin felt more at ease in his grandfather's presence than in his parents they seemed always somewhat in awe of him and despite the dictatorial authority they exercised over him frequently addressed him as mister he was as puzzled as anyone else at the apparently advanced age of his mind and body at birth he read up on it in the medical journal but found that no such case had been previously recorded at his father's urging he made an honest attempt to play with other boys and frequently he joined in the milder games football shook him up too much and he feared that in case of a fracture his ancient bones would refuse to knit when he was five he was sent to kindergarten where he initiated into the art of pasting green paper on orange paper of weaving colored maps and manufacturing eternal cardboard necklaces he was inclined to drowse off to sleep in the middle of these tasks a habit which both irritated and frightened his young teacher to his relief she complained to his parents and he was removed from the school the roger buttons told their friends that they felt he was too young 
but by the time he was twelve years old his parents had grown used to him indeed so strong is the force of custom that they no longer felt that he was different from any other child except when some curious anomaly reminded them of the fact but one day a few weeks after his twelfth birthday while looking in the mirror benjamin made or thought he made an astonishing discovery did his eyes deceive him or had his hair turned in the dozen years of his life from white to iron gray under its concealing dye was the network of wrinkles on his face becoming less pronounced was his skin healthier and firmer with even a touch of ruddy winter color he could not tell he knew that he no longer stooped and that his physical condition had improved since the early days of his life can it be he thought to himself or rather scarcely dared to think he went to his father i am grown he announced determinedly i want to put on long trousers his father hesitated well he said finally i don't know fourteen is the age for putting on long trousers and you are only twelve but you'll have to admit protested benjamin that i'm big for my age his father looked at him with illusory speculation oh i'm not so sure of that he said i was as big as you when i was twelve this was not true it was all part of roger button's silent agreement with himself to believe in his son's normality finally a compromise was reached benjamin was to continue to dye his hair he was to make a better attempt to play with boys of his own age he was not to wear his spectacles or carry a cane in the street in return for these concessions he was allowed his first suit of long trousers four of the life of benjamin button between his twelfth and twenty-first year i intend to say little suffice to record that they were years of normal ungrowth when benjamin was eighteen he was erect as a man of fifty he had more hair and it was of a dark gray his step was firm his voice had lost its cracked quaver and descended to a healthy baritone so his father sent him up to connecticut to take examinations for entrance to yale college benjamin passed his examination and became a member of the freshman class on the third day following his matriculation he received a notification from mr hart the college registrar to call at his office and arrange his schedule benjamin glancing in the mirror decided that his hair needed a new application of its brown dye but an anxious inspection of his bureau drawer disclosed that the dye bottle was not there then he remembered he had emptied it the day before and thrown it away he was in a dilemma he was due at the registrar's in five minutes there seemed to be no help for it he must go as he was he did good morning said the registrar politely you've come to inquire about your son why as a matter of fact my name's button began benjamin but mr hart cut him off i am very glad to meet you mr button i'm expecting your son here any minute that's me burst out benjamin i'm a freshman what i'm a freshman surely you're joking not at all the registrar frowned and glanced at a card before him why i have mr benjamin button's age down here as eighteen that's my age asserted benjamin blushing slightly the registrar eyed him wearily now surely mr button you don't expect me to believe that benjamin smiled wearily i am eighteen he repeated the registrar pointed sternly to the door get out he said get out of college and get out of town you are a dangerous lunatic i am eighteen mr hart opened the door the idea he shouted a man of your age trying to enter here as a freshman 
eighteen years old are you well i'll give you eighteen minutes to get out of town benjamin button walked with dignity from the room and half a dozen undergraduates who were waiting in the hall followed him curiously with their eyes when he had gone a little way he turned around faced the infuriated registrar who was still standing in the doorway and repeated in a firm voice i am eighteen years old to a chorus of titters which went up from the group of undergraduates benjamin walked away but he was not fated to escape so easily on his melancholy walk to the railroad station he found that he was being followed by a group then by a swarm and finally by a dense mass of undergraduates the word had gone around that a lunatic had passed the entrance examinations for yale and attempted to palm himself off as a youth of eighteen a fever of excitement permeated the college men ran hatless out of classes the football team abandoned its practice and joined the mob professors wives with bonnets awry and bustles out of position ran shouting after the procession from which proceeded a continual succession of remarks aimed at the tender sensibilities of benjamin button he must be the wandering jew we ought to go to prep school at his age look at the infant prodigy he thought this was the old men's home go up to harvard benjamin increased his gait and soon he was running he would show them he would go to harvard and then they would regret these ill-considered taunts safely on board the train for baltimore he put his head from the window you'll regret this he shouted ha ha the undergraduates laughed ha 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 it was the biggest mistake that yale college had ever made five in eighteen eighty benjamin button was twenty years old and he signalized his birthday by going to work for his father in roger button and company wholesale hardware it was in that same year that he began going out socially that is his father insisted on taking him to several fashionable dances roger button was now fifty and he and his son were more and more companionable in fact since benjamin had ceased to dye his hair which was still grayish they appeared about the same age and could have passed for brothers one night in august they got into the phaeton attired in their full-dress suits and drove out to a dance at the chevlin's country house situated just outside of baltimore it was a gorgeous evening a full moon drenched the road to the lustreless color of platinum and late blooming harvest flowers breathed into the motionless air aromas that were like low half-hearted laughter the open country carpeted for rods around with bright wheat was translucent as in the day it was almost impossible not to be affected by the sheer beauty of the sky almost there's a great future in the dry goods business roger button was saying he was not a spiritual man his aesthetic sense was rudimentary old fellows like me can't learn new tricks he observed profoundly it's you youngsters with energy and vitality that have the great future before you far up the road the lights of the chevlin's country house drifted into view and presently there was a sighing sound that crept persistently toward them it might have been the fine plaint of violins or the rustle of the silver wheat under the moon they pulled up behind a handsome brougham whose passengers were disembarking at the door a lady got out then an elderly gentleman then another young lady beautiful as sin benjamin started an almost chemical change seemed to dissolve and recompose the very elements of his body a rigor passed over him blood rose into his cheeks his forehead and there was a steady thumping in his ears it was first love 
the girl was slender and frail with hair that was ashen under the moon and honey-coloured under the spluttering gas lamps of the porch over her shoulders was thrown a spanish mantilla of softest yellow butterflied in black her feet were glittering buttons at the hem of her bustled dress roger button leaned over his son that he said is young hildegard moncrief the daughter of general moncrief benjamin nodded coldly pretty little thing he said indifferently but when the negro boy had led the buggy away he added dad you might introduce me to her they approached the group of which miss moncrief was the centre reared in the old tradition she curtsied low before benjamin yes he might have a dance he thanked her and walked away staggered away the interval until the time for his turn should arrive dragged itself out interminably he stood close to the wall silent inscrutable watching with murderous eyes the young bloods of baltimore as they eddied around hildegard moncrief passionate admiration in their faces how obnoxious they seemed to benjamin how intolerably rosy their curling brown whiskers aroused in him a feeling equivalent to indigestion but when his own time came and he drifted with her out upon the changing floor to the music of the latest waltz from paris his jealousies and anxieties melted from him like a mantle of snow blind with enchantment he felt that life was just beginning you and your brother got here just as we did didn't you asked hildegarde looking up at him with eyes that were like bright blue enamel benjamin hesitated if she took him for his father's brother would it be best to enlighten her he remembered his experience at yale so he decided against it it would be rude to contradict a lady it would be criminal to mar this exquisite occasion with the grotesque story of his origin later perhaps so he nodded smiled listened and was happy i like men of your age hildegarde told him young boys are so idiotic they tell me how much champagne they drink at college and how much money they lose playing cards men of your age know how to appreciate women benjamin felt himself on the verge of a proposal with an effort he choked back the impulse you're just the romantic age she continued fifty twenty-five is too worldly wise thirty is apt to be pale from overwork forty is the age of long stories that take a whole cigar to tell sixty is oh sixty is too near seventy but fifty is the mellow age i love fifty fifty seemed to benjamin a glorious age he longed passionately to be fifty i've always said went on hildegarde that i'd rather marry a man of fifty and be taken care of than marry a man of thirty and take care of him for benjamin the rest of the evening was bathed in a honey-coloured mist hildegarde gave him two more dances and they discovered that they were marvellously in accord on all the questions of the day she was to go driving with him on the following sunday and then they would discuss all these questions further going home in the phaeton just before the crack of dawn when the first bees were humming and the fading moon glimmered in the cool dew benjamin knew vaguely that his father was discussing wholesale hardware and what do you think should merit our biggest attention after hammers and nails the elder button was saying love replied benjamin absent-mindedly lugs exclaimed roger button why i've just covered the question of lugs benjamin regarded him with dazed eyes just as the eastern sky was suddenly cracked with light and an oriole yawned piercingly in the quickening trees six when six months later the engagement of miss hildegarde moncrief to mr benjamin button was made known 
i say made known for general moncrief declared that he would rather fall upon his sword than announce it the excitement in baltimore society reached a feverish pitch the almost forgotten story of benjamin's birth was remembered and sent out upon the winds of scandal in picaresque and incredible forms it was said that benjamin was really the father of roger button that he was his brother who had been in prison for forty years that he was john wilkes booth in disguise and finally that he had two small conical horns sprouting from his head the sunday supplements of the new york papers played up the case with fascinating sketches which showed the head of benjamin button attached to a fish to a snake and finally to a body of solid brass he became known journalistically as the mystery man of maryland but the true story as is usually the case had a very small circulation however everyone agreed with general moncrief that it was criminal for a lovely girl who could have married any beau in baltimore to throw herself into the arms of a man who was assuredly fifty in vain mr roger button publicized his son's birth certificate in large type in the baltimore blaze no one believed it you had only to look at benjamin and see on the part of the two people most concerned there was no wavering so many of the stories about her fiancé were false that hildegarde refused stubbornly to believe even the true one in vain general moncrief pointed out to her the high mortality among men of fifty or at least among men who looked fifty in vain he told her of the instability of the wholesale hardware business hildegarde had chosen to marry for mellowness and marry she did seven in one particular at least the friends of hildegarde moncrief were mistaken the wholesale hardware business prospered amazingly in the fifteen years between benjamin button's marriage in eighteen eighty and his father's retirement in eighteen ninety five the family fortune was doubled and this was due largely to the younger member of the firm needless to say baltimore eventually received the couple to its bosom even old general moncrief became reconciled to his son-in-law when benjamin gave him the money to bring out his history of the civil war in twenty volumes which had been refused by nine prominent publishers in benjamin himself fifteen years had wrought many changes it seemed to him that the blood flowed with new vigour through his veins it began to be a pleasure to rise in the morning to walk with an active step along the busy sunny street to work untiringly with his shipments of hammers and his cargoes of nails it was in eighteen ninety that he executed his famous business coup he brought up the suggestion that all nails used in nailing up the boxes in which nails are shipped are the property of the shippee a proposal which became a statute was approved by chief justice fossile and saved roger button and company wholesale hardware more than six hundred nails every year in addition benjamin discovered that he was becoming more and more attracted by the gay side of life it was typical of his growing enthusiasm for pleasure that he was the first man in the city of baltimore to own and run an automobile meeting him on the street his contemporaries would stare enviously at the picture he made of health and vitality he seems to grow younger every year they would remark and if old roger button now sixty-five years old had failed at first to give a proper welcome to his son he atoned at least by bestowing on him what amounted to adulation and here we come to an unpleasant subject which it will be well to pass over as quickly as possible there was only one thing that worried benjamin button his wife had ceased to attract him at the time hildegarde was a woman of thirty-five with a son roscoe fourteen years old 
in the early days of their marriage benjamin had worshipped her but as the years passed her honey-coloured hair became an unexciting brown the blue enamel of her eyes assumed the aspect of cheap crockery moreover and most of all she had become too settled in her ways too placid too content too anemic in her excitements and too sober in her taste as a bride it had been she who had dragged benjamin to dances and dinners now conditions were reversed she went out socially with him but without enthusiasm devoured already by that eternal inertia which comes to live with each of us one day and stays with us to the end benjamin's discontent waxed stronger at the outbreak of the spanish-american war in eighteen ninety eight his home had for him so little charm that he decided to join the army with his business influence he obtained a commission as captain and proved so adaptable to the work that he was made a major and finally a lieutenant-colonel just in time to participate in the celebrated charge up san juan hill he was slightly wounded and received a medal benjamin had become so attached to the activity and excitement of army life that he regretted to give it up but his business required attention so he resigned his commission and came home he was met at the station by a brass band and escorted to his house eight hildegarde waving a large silk flag greeted him on the porch and even as he kissed her he felt with a sinking of the heart that these three years had taken their toll she was a woman of forty now with a faint skirmish line of grey hairs in her head the sight depressed him up in his room he saw his reflection in the familiar mirror he went closer and examined his own face with anxiety comparing it after a moment with a photograph of himself in uniform taken just before the war good lord he said aloud the process was continuing there was no doubt of it he looked now like a man of thirty instead of being delighted he was uneasy he was growing younger he had hitherto hoped that once he reached a bodily age equivalent to his age in years the grotesque phenomenon which had marked his birth would cease to function he shuddered his destiny seemed to him awful incredible when he came downstairs hildegarde was waiting for him she appeared annoyed and he wondered if she had at last discovered that there was something amiss it was with an effort to relieve the tension between them that he broached the matter at dinner in what he considered a delicate way well he remarked lightly everybody says i look younger than ever hildegarde regarded him with scorn she sniffed do you think it's anything to boast about i'm not boasting he asserted uncomfortably she sniffed again the idea she said after a moment i should think you'd have enough pride to stop it how can i he demanded i'm not going to argue with you she retorted but there's a right way of doing things and a wrong way if you've made up your mind to be different from everybody else i don't suppose i can stop you but i really don't think it's very considerate but hildegarde i can't help it you can too you're simply stubborn you think you don't want to be like anyone else you always have been that way and you always will be but just think how it would be if everyone else looked at things as you do what would the world be like as this was an inane and unanswerable argument benjamin made no reply and from that time on a chasm began to widen between them he wondered what possible fascination she had ever exercised over him to add to the breach he found as the new century gathered headway that his thirst for gaiety grew stronger never a party of any kind in the city of baltimore but he was there dancing with the prettiest of the young married women chatting with the most popular of the debutantes and finding their company charming 
while his wife a dowager of evil omen sat among the chaperones now in haughty disapproval and now following him with solemn puzzled and reproachful eyes look people would remark what a pity a young fellow that age tied to a woman of forty-five he must be twenty years younger than his wife they had forgotten as people inevitably forget that back in eighteen eighty their mamas and papas had also remarked about this same ill-matched pair benjamin's growing unhappiness at home was compensated for by his many new interests he took up golf and made a great success of it he went in for dancing in nineteen o six he was an expert at the boston and in nineteen o eight he was considered proficient at the maxine while in nineteen o nine his castle walk was the envy of every young man in town his social activities of course interfered to some extent with his business but then he had worked hard at wholesale hardware for twenty-five years and felt that he could soon hand it on to his son roscoe who had recently graduated from harvard he and his son were in fact often mistaken for each other this pleased benjamin he soon forgot the insidious fear which had come over him on his return from the spanish-american war and grew to take a naive pleasure in his appearance there was only one fly in the delicious ointment he hated to appear in public with his wife hildegard was almost fifty and the sight of her made him feel absurd nine one september day in nineteen ten a few years after roger button and company wholesale hardware had been handed over to young roscoe button a man apparently about twenty years old entered himself as a freshman at harvard university in cambridge he did not make the mistake of announcing that he would never see fifty again nor did he mention the fact that his son had been graduated from the same institution ten years before he was admitted and almost immediately attained a prominent position in the class partly because he seemed a little older than the other freshmen whose average age was about eighteen but his success was largely due to the fact that in the football game with yale he played so brilliantly and with so much dash and with such a cold remorseless anger that he scored seven touchdowns and fourteen field goals for harvard and caused one entire eleven of yale men to be carried singly from the field unconscious he was the most celebrated man in college strange to say in his third or junior year he was scarcely able to make the team the coaches said that he had lost weight and it seemed to the more observant among them that he was not quite as tall as before he made no touchdowns indeed he was retained on the team chiefly in hope that his enormous reputation would bring terror and disorganization to the yale team in his senior year he did not make the team at all he had grown so slight and frail that one day he was taken by some sophomores for a freshman an incident which humiliated him terribly he became known as something of a prodigy a senior who was surely no more than sixteen and he was often shocked at the worldliness of some of his classmates his studies seemed harder to him he felt that they were too advanced he had heard his classmates speak of st midas's the famous preparatory school at which so many of them had prepared for college and he determined after his graduation to enter himself at st midas's where the sheltered life among boys his own size would be more congenial to him upon his graduation in nineteen fourteen he went home to baltimore with his harvard diploma in his pocket hildegard was now residing in italy so benjamin went to live with his son roscoe but though he was welcomed in a general way there was obviously no heartiness in roscoe's feeling toward him there was even perceptible a tendency on his son's part to think that benjamin 
as he moped about the house in adolescent mooniness was somewhat in the way roscoe was married now and prominent in baltimore life and he wanted no scandal to creep out in connection with his family benjamin no longer persona grata with the debutantes and younger college set found himself left much done except for the companionship of three or four fifteen-year-old boys in the neighborhood his idea of going to st midas's school recurred to him say he said to roscoe one day i've told you over and over that i want to go to prep school well go then replied roscoe shortly the matter was distasteful to him and he wished to avoid a discussion i can't go alone said benjamin helplessly you'll have to enter me and take me up there i haven't got time declared roscoe abruptly his eyes narrowed and he looked uneasily at his father as a matter of fact he added you'd better not go on with this business much longer you better pull up short you better you better he paused and his face crimsoned as he sought for words you better turn right around and start back the other way this has gone too far to be a joke it isn't funny any longer you you behave yourself benjamin looked at him on the verge of tears and another thing continued roscoe when visitors are in the house i want you to call me uncle not roscoe but uncle do you understand it looks absurd for a boy of fifteen to call me by my first name perhaps you'd better call me uncle all the time so you'll get used to it with a harsh look at his father roscoe turned away ten at the termination of this interview benjamin wandered dismally upstairs and stared at himself in the mirror he had not shaved for three months but he could find nothing on his face but a faint white down with which it seemed unnecessary to meddle when he had first come home from harvard roscoe had approached him with the proposition that he should wear eye-glasses and imitation whiskers glued to his cheeks and it had seemed for a moment that the farce of his early years was to be repeated but whiskers had itched and made him ashamed he wept and roscoe had reluctantly relented benjamin opened a book of boys stories the boy scouts in bimini bay and began to read but he found himself thinking persistently about the war america had joined the allied cause during the preceding month and benjamin wanted to enlist but alas sixteen was the minimum age and he did not look that old his true age which was fifty-seven would have disqualified him anyway there was a knock at his door and the butler appeared with a letter bearing a large official legend in the corner and addressed to mr benjamin button benjamin tore it open eagerly and read the enclosure with delight it informed him that many reserve officers who had served in the spanish-american war were being called back into service with a higher rank and it enclosed his commission as brigadier-general in the united states army with orders to report immediately benjamin jumped to his feet fairly quivering with enthusiasm this was what he had wanted he seized his cap and ten minutes later he had entered a large tailoring establishment on charles street and asked in his uncertain treble to be measured for a uniform want to play soldier sonny demanded a clerk casually benjamin flushed say never mind what i want he retorted angrily my name's button and i live on mount vernon place so you know i'm good for it well admitted the clerk hesitantly if you're not i guess your daddy is all right benjamin was measured and a week later his uniform was completed he had difficulty in obtaining the proper general's insignia because the dealer kept insisting to benjamin that a nice v w c a badge would look just as well and be much more fun to play with 
saying nothing to roscoe he left the house one night and proceeded by train to camp mosby in south carolina where he was to command an infantry brigade on a sultry april day he approached the entrance to the camp paid off the taxicab which had brought him from the station and turned to the sentry on guard get someone to handle my luggage he said briskly the sentry eyed him reproachfully say he remarked where are you going with the general's duds sonny benjamin veteran of the spanish-american war whirled upon him with fire in his eye but with alas a changing treble voice come to attention he tried to thunder he paused for breath then suddenly he saw the sentry snap his heels together and bring his rifle to the present benjamin concealed a smile of gratification but when he glanced around his smile faded it was not he who had inspired obedience but an imposing artillery colonel who was approaching on horseback colonel called benjamin shrilly the colonel came up drew rein and looked coolly down at him with a twinkle in his eyes whose little boy are you he demanded kindly i'll soon darn well show you whose little boy i am retorted benjamin in a ferocious voice get down off that horse the colonel roared with laughter you want him eh general here cried benjamin desperately read this and he thrust his commission toward the colonel the colonel read it his eyes popping from their sockets where'd you get this he demanded slipping the document into his own pocket i got it from the government as you'll soon find out you come along with me said the colonel with a peculiar look we'll go up to headquarters and talk this over come along the colonel turned and began walking his horse in the direction of headquarters there was nothing for benjamin to do but follow with as much dignity as possible meanwhile promising himself a stern revenge but this revenge did not materialize two days later however his son roscoe materialized from baltimore hot and cross from a hasty trip and escorting the weeping general sans uniform back to his home two in nineteen twenty roscoe button's first child was born during the attendant festivities however no one thought it the thing to mention that the little grubby boy apparently about ten years of age who played around the house with lead soldiers in a miniature circus was the new baby's own grandfather no one disliked the little boy whose fresh cheerful face was crossed with just a hint of sadness but to roscoe button his presence was a source of torment in the idiom of his generation roscoe did not consider the matter efficient it seemed to him that his father in refusing to look sixty had not behaved like a red-blooded he-man this was roscoe's favourite expression but in a curious and perverse manner indeed to think about the matter for as much as a half an hour drove him to the edge of insanity roscoe believed that live wires should keep young but carrying out on such a scale was 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 inefficient and there roscoe rested five years later roscoe's little boy had grown old enough to play childish games with little benjamin under the supervision of the same nurse roscoe took them both to kindergarten on the same day and benjamin found that playing with little strips of colored paper making mats and chains and curious and beautiful designs was the most fascinating game in the world once he was bad and had to stand in the corner then he cried but for the most part there were gay hours in the cheerful room and the sunlight coming in the windows and miss bailey's kind hand resting for a moment now and then in his tousled hair roscoe's son moved up into the first grade after a year but benjamin stayed on in the kindergarten he was very happy 
sometimes when other tots talked about what they would do when they grew up a shadow would cross his little face as if in a dim childish way he realized that those were things in which he was never to share the days flowed on in monotonous content he went back a third year to the kindergarten but he was too little now to understand what the bright shining strips of paper were for he cried because the other boys were bigger than he and he was afraid of them the teacher talked to him but though he tried to understand he could not understand at all he was taken from the kindergarten his nurse nana in her starched gingham dress became the centre of his tiny world on bright days they walked in the park nana would point at a great gray monster and say elephant and benjamin would say it after her and when he was being undressed for bed that night he would say it over and over aloud to her elephant 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 sometimes nana let him jump in the bed which was fun because if you sat down exactly right it would bounce you up on your feet again and if you said ah for a long time while you jumped you got a very pleasing broken vocal effect he loved to take a big cane from the hat-rack and go around hitting chairs and tables with it saying fight 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 when there were people there the old ladies would cluck at him which interested him and the young ladies would try to kiss him which he submitted to with mild boredom and when the long day was done at five o'clock he would go upstairs with nana to be fed on oatmeal and nice soft mushy foods with a spoon there were no troublesome memories in his childish sleep no token came to him of his brave days at college of the glittering years when he flustered the hearts of many girls there were only the white safe walls of his crib and nana and a man who came to see him sometimes and a great big orange ball that nana pointed at just before his twilight bed hour and called sun when the sun went his eyes were sleepy there were no dreams no dreams to haunt him the past the wild charge at the head of his men up san juan hill the first years of his marriage when he worked late into the summer dusk down in the busy city for young hildegard whom he loved the days before that when he sat smoking far into the night in the gloomy old button house on monroe street with his grandfather all those had faded like unsubstantial dreams from his mind as though they had never been he did not remember he did not remember clearly whether the milk was warm or cool at his last feeding or how the days passed there was only his crib and nana's familiar presence and then he remembered nothing when he was hungry he cried that was all through the noons and nights he breathed and over him there were soft mumblings and murmurings that he scarcely heard and faintly differentiated smells and light and darkness then it was all dark and his white crib and the dim faces that moved above him and the warm sweet aroma of the milk faded out altogether from his mind end of section eight read by don w jenkins rancho san diego california shaggybark.blogspot.com section nine of tales of the jazz age by f scott fitzgerald this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by don w jenkins tarquin of cheapside running footsteps light soft-soled shoes made of curious leathery cloth brought from salon setting the pace thick flowing boots two pairs dark blue and gilt reflecting the moonlight in blunt gleams and splotches following a stone's throw behind 
soft shoes flashes through a patch of moonlight then darts into a blind labyrinth of alleys and becomes only an intermittent scuffle ahead somewhere in the enfolding darkness in go flowing boots with short swords lurching and long plumes awry finding a breath to curse god and the black lanes of london soft shoes leaps a shadowy gate and crackles through a hedgerow flowing boots leap the gate and crackles through the hedgerow and there startlingly is the watch ahead two murderous pikemen of ferocious cast of mouth acquired in holland and the spanish marches but there is no cry for help the pursued does not fall panting at the feet of the watch clutching a purse neither do the pursuers raise a hue and cry soft shoes goes by in a rush of swift air the watch curse and hesitate glance after the fugitive and then spread their pikes grimly across the road and wait for flowing boots darkness like a great hand cuts off the even flow of the moon the hand moves off the moon whose pale caress finds again the eaves and lintels and the watch wounded and tumbled in the dust up the street one of the flowing boots leaves a black trail of spots until he binds himself clumsily as he runs with fine lace caught from his throat it was no affair for the watch satan was at large to-night and satan seemed to be he who appeared dimly in front heel over gate knee over fence moreover the adversary was obviously travelling near home or at least in that section of london consecrated to his coarser whims for the street narrowed like a road in a picture and the houses bent over further and further cooping in natural ambushes suitable for murder and its historic sister sudden death down long and sinuous lanes twisted the hunted and the harriers always in and out of the moon in a perpetual queen's move over a checkerboard of glints and patches ahead the quarry minus his leather jerkin now and half blinded by drips of sweat had taken to scanning his ground desperately on both sides as a result he suddenly slowed short and retracing his steps a bit scooted up an alley so dark that it seemed that here sun and moon had been in eclipse since the last glacier slipped roaring over the earth two hundred yards down he stopped and crammed himself into a niche in the wall where he huddled and panted silently a grotesque god without bulk or outline in the gloom flowing boots two pairs drew near came up went by halted twenty yards beyond him and spoke in deep-lunged scanty whispers i was attuned to that scuffle it stopped within twenty paces he's hid stay together now and we'll cut him up the voice faded into a low crunch of boot nor did soft shoes wait to hear more he sprang in three leaps across the alley where he bounded up flapped for a moment on the top of the wall like a huge bird and disappeared gulped down by the hungry night at a mouthful Two. he read at wine he read in bed he read aloud had he breath his every thought was with the dead and so he read himself to death any visitor to the old james i graveyard near pete's hill may spell out this bit of doggerel undoubtedly one of the worst recorded of an elizabethan on the tomb of wessel castor this death of his says the antiquary occurred when he was thirty-seven but as this story is concerned with the night of a certain chase through the darkness we find him still alive still reading his eyes were somewhat dim his stomach somewhat obvious he was a misbuilt man and indolent oh heavens but an era is an era and in the reign of elizabeth by the grace of luther 
queen of england no man could help but catch the spirit of enthusiasm every loft in cheapside published its magnum folium or magazine of its new blank verse the cheapside players would produce anything on sight as long as it got away from those reactionary miracle plays and the english bible had run through seven very large printings in as many months so wessel caxter who in his youth had gone to sea was now a reader of all on which he could lay his hands he read manuscripts and holy friendship he dined rotten poets he loitered about the shops where the magnifolia were printed and he listened tolerantly while the young playwrights wrangled and bickered among themselves and behind each other's backs made bitter and malicious charges of plagiarism or anything else they could think of to-night he had a book a piece of work which though inordinately versed contained he thought some rather excellent political satire the fairy queen by edmund spencer lay before him under the tremulous candlelight he had ploughed through a canto he was beginning another the legend of britomartis or of chastity it falls me here to write of chastity the fairest virtue far above the rest a sudden rush of feet on the stairs a rusty swing open of the thin door and a man thrust himself into the room a man without a jerkin panting sobbing on the verge of collapse whistle words choked him stick me away somewhere love of our lady caxter rose carefully closing his book and bolted the door in some concern i'm pursued cried out soft shoes i vow there's two short-witted blades trying to make me into mincemeat and near succeeding they saw me hop the back wall it would need said wessel looking at him curiously several battalions armed with blunderbusses and two or three armadas to keep you reasonably secure from the revenges of the world soft shoes smiled with satisfaction his sobbing gasps were giving way to quick precise breathing his hunted air had faded to a faintly perturbed irony i feel a little surprise continued wessel they were two such dreary apes making a total of three only two unless you stick me away man man come alive they'll be on the stairs in a spark's age wessel took a dismantled pike staff from the corner and raising it to the high ceiling dislodged a rough trap-door opening into a garret above there's no ladder he moved a bench under the trap upon which soft shoes mounted crouched hesitated crouched again and then leaped amazingly upward he caught at the edge of the aperture and swung back and forth for a moment shifting his hold finally doubled up and disappeared into the darkness above there was a scurry a migration of rats as the trap-door was replaced silence wessel returned to his reading-table opened to the legend of britomartis or of chastity and waited almost a minute later there was a scramble on the stairs and an intolerable hammering at the door wessel sighed and picking up his candle rose who's there open the door who's there an aching blow frightened the frail wood splintered it around the edge wessel opened it a scarce three inches and held the candle high his was to play the timorous the super respectable citizen disgracefully disturbed one small hour of the night for rest is that too much to ask from every brawler and quiet gossip have you seen a perspiring fellow the shadows of two gallants fell in immense wavering outlines over the narrow stairs by the light wessel scrutinized them closely gentlemen they were hastily but richly dressed one of them wounded severely in the hand both radiating a sort of furious horror 
waving aside wessel's ready miscomprehension they pushed by him into the room and with their swords went through the business of poking carefully into all suspected dark spots in the room further extending their search to wessel's bedchamber is he hid here demanded the wounded man fiercely is who here any man but you only two others that i know of for a second wessel feared that he had been too damned funny for the gallants made as though to prick him through i heard a man on the stairs he said hastily full five minutes ago it was he most certainly failed to come up he went on to explain his absorption in the fairy queen but for the moment at least his visitors like the great saints were anaesthetic to culture what's been done inquired wessel violence said the man with the wounded hand wessel noticed that his eyes were quite wild my own sister oh christ in heaven give us this man wessel winced who is the man god's word we know not even that what's that trap up there he added suddenly it's nailed down it's not been used for years he thought of the pole in the corner and quailed in his belly but the utter despair of the two men dulled their astuteness it would take a ladder for anyone not a tumbler said the wounded man listlessly his companion broke into hysterical laughter a tumbler oh a tumbler oh wessel stared at them in wonder that appeals to my most tragic humour cried the man that no one oh no one could get up there but a tumbler the gallant with the wounded hand snapped his good fingers impatiently we must go next door and then on helplessly they went as two walking under a dark and storm-swept sky wessel closed and bolted the door and stood a moment by it frowning in pity a low breathed ha made him look up soft shoes had already raised the trap and was looking down into the room his rather elfish face squeezed into a grimace half of distaste half of sardonic amusement they take off their heads with their helmets he remarked in a whisper but as for you and me wessel we are two cunning men now you be cursed cried wessel vehemently i know you for a dog but when i hear even the half of a tale like this i know you for such a dirty cur that i am minded to club your skull soft shoes stared at him blinking at all events he replied finally i find dignity impossible in this position with this he let his body through the trap hung for an instant and dropped the seven feet to the floor there was a rat considering my ear with the air of a gourmet he continued dusting his hands on his breeches i told him in the rat's peculiar idiom that i was deadly poison so he took himself off let's hear of this night's lechery insisted wessel angrily soft shoes touched his thumb to his nose and wiggled the fingers derisively at wessel straight gammon muttered wessel have you any paper demanded soft shoes irrelevantly and then rudely added or can you write why should i give you paper you wanted to hear of the night's entertainment so you shall and you give me pen ink a sheaf of paper and a room to myself wessel hesitated get out he said finally as you will yet you have missed a most intriguing story wessel wavered he was soft as taffy that man gave in soft shoes went into the adjoining room with the begrudged writing materials and precisely closed the door wessel grunted and returned to the fairy queen so silence came once more upon the house three three o'clock went into four the room paled the dark outside was shot through with damp and chill and wessel cupping his brain in his hands bent low over his table tracing through the pattern of knights and fairies and the harrowing distresses of many girls there were dragons chortling along the narrow street outside 
when the sleepy armourer's boy began his work at half-past five the heavy clink and clank of plate and linked mail swelled to the echo of a marching cavalcade a fog shut down at the first flare of dawn and the room was grayish-yellow at six when wessel tiptoed to his cupboard bedchamber and pulled open the door his guest turned on him a face pale as parchment in which two distraught eyes burned like great red letters he had drawn a chair close to wessel's prédieu which he was using as a desk and on it was an amazing stack of closely written pages with a long sigh wessel withdrew and returned to his siren calling himself fool for not claiming his bed here at dawn the dump of boots outside the croaking of old bell dams from attic to attic the dull murmur of morning unnerved him and dozing he slumped in his chair his brain overladen with sound and colour working intolerably over the imagery that stacked it in this restless dream of his he was one of a thousand groaning bodies crushed near the sun a helpless bridge for the strong-eyed apollo the dream tore at him scraped along his mind like a ragged knife when a hot hand touched his shoulder he awoke with what was nearly a scream to find the fog thick in the room and his guest a grey ghost of misty stuff beside him with a pile of paper in his hand it should be a most intriguing tale i believe though it requires some going over may i ask you to lock it away and in god's name let me sleep he waited for no answer but thrust the pile at wessel and literally poured himself like stuff from a suddenly inverted bottle upon a couch in the corner slept with his breathing regular but his brow wrinkled in a curious and somewhat uncanny manner wessel yawned sleepily and glancing at the scrawled uncertain first page he began reading aloud very softly the rape of lucrece from the besieged ardea all in post borne by the trustless wings of false desire lust-breathing tarquin leaves the roman host end of section nine read by don w jenkins rancho san diego california shaggybark.blogspot.com section ten of tales of the jazz age by f scott fitzgerald this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Don W. Jenkins O Russet Witch Merlin Granger was employed by the Moonlight Quill Bookshop, which you may have visited just around the corner from the Ritz-Carlton on 47th Street. The Moonlight Quill is, or rather was, a very romantic little store, considered radical and admitted dark it was spotted interiorly with red and orange posters of breathless exotic intent and lit no less by the shiny reflecting bindings of special editions than by the great squat lamp of crimson satin that lighted through all the day swung overhead it was truly a mellow bookshop the words moonlight quill were worked over the door in a sort of serpentine embroidery the windows seemed always full of something that had passed the literary censors with little to spare volumes with covers of deep orange which offer their titles on little white paper squares and over all there was the smell of the musk which the clever inscrutable mr moonlight quill ordered to be sprinkled about the smell half of a curiosity shop in dickens london and half of a coffee-house on the warm shores of the bosphorus from nine until five-thirty merlin granger asked bored old ladies in black and young men with dark circles under their eyes if they cared for this fellow or were interested in first editions 
did they buy novels with arabs on the cover or books which gave shakespeare's newest sonnets as dictated psychically to miss sutton of south dakota he sniffed as a matter of fact his own taste ran to these latter but as an employee of the moonlight quill he assumed for the working day the attitude of a disillusioned connoisseur after he had crawled over the window display to pull down the front shade at five thirty every afternoon and said good-bye to the mysterious mr moonlight quill and the lady clerk miss mccracken and the lady stenographer miss masters he went home to the girl carolyn he did not eat supper with carolyn it is unbelievable that carolyn would have considered eating off his bureau with the collar buttons dangerously near the cottage cheese and the ends of merlin's necktie just missing his glass of milk he had never asked her to eat with him he ate alone he went into Bregdort's delicatessen on sixth avenue and bought a box of crackers a tube of anchovy paste and some oranges or else a little jar of sausages and some potato salad and a bottled soft drink and with these in a brown package he went to his room at fifty-something west fifty-eighth street and ate his supper and saw carolyn carolyn was a very young and gay person who lived with some older lady and was possibly nineteen she was like a ghost in that she never existed until evening she sprang into life when the lights went on in her apartment at about six and she disappeared at the latest about midnight her apartment was a nice one in a nice building with a white stone front opposite the south side of central park the back of her apartment faced the single window of the single room occupied by the single mr granger he called her carolyn because there was a picture that looked like her on the jacket of a book of that name down at the moonlight quill now merlin granger was a thin young man of twenty-five with dark hair and no moustache or beard or anything like that but carolyn was dazzling and light with a shimmering morass of russet waves to take the place of hair and the sort of features that remind you of kisses the sort of features you thought belonged to your first love but no when you come across an old picture didn't she dressed in pink or blue usually but of late she had sometimes put on a slender black gown that was evidently her especial pride for whenever she wore it she would stand regarding a certain place on the wall which merlin thought must be a mirror she sat usually in the profile chair near the window but sometimes honoured the chaise lounge by the lamp and often she leaned way back and smoked a cigarette with posturings of her arms and hands that merlin considered very graceful at another time she had come to the window and stood in it magnificently and looked out because the moon had lost its way and was dripping the strangest and most transforming brilliance into the areaway between turning the motif of ash cans and clotheslines into a vivid impressionism of silver casks and giant gossamer cobwebs merlin was sitting in plain sight eating cottage cheese with sugar and milk on it and so quickly did he reach out for the window cord that he tipped the cottage cheese into his lap with his free hand and the milk was cold and the sugar made spots on his trousers and he was sure that she had seen him after all sometimes there were callers men in dinner coats who stood and bowed hat in hand and coat on arm as they talked to carolyn then bowed some more and followed her out of the light obviously bound for a play or for a dance other young men came and sat and smoked cigarettes and seemed trying to tell carolyn something she sitting either in the profile chair and watching them with eager intentness or else in the chaise lounge by the lamp looking very lovely and youthfully inscrutable indeed 
merlin enjoyed these calls some of the men he approved others won only his grudging toleration one or two he loathed especially the most frequent caller a man with black hair and a black goatee and a pitch-dark soul who seemed to merlin vaguely familiar but whom he was never quite able to recognize now merlin's whole life was not bound up with this romance he had constructed it was not the happiest hour of his day he never arrived in time to rescue caroline from clutches nor did he even marry her a much stranger thing happened than any of these and it is this strange thing that will presently be set down here it began one october afternoon when she walked briskly into the mellow interior of the moonlight quill it was a dark afternoon threatening rain and the end of the world and done in that particularly gloomy gray in which only new york afternoons indulge a breeze was crying down the streets whisking along battered newspapers and pieces of things and little lights were pricking out all the windows it was so desolate that one was sorry for the tops of skyscrapers lost up there in the dark green gray heaven and felt that now surely the farce was to close and presently all the buildings would collapse like card houses and pile up in a dusty sardonic heap upon all the millions who presumed to wind in and out of them at least these were the sort of musings that lay heavily upon the soul of merlin granger as he stood by the window putting a dozen books back in a row after a cyclonic visit by a lady with ermine trimmings he looked out of the window full of the most distressing thoughts of the early novels of h d wells of the boot genesis of how thomas edison had said that in thirty years there would be no dwelling-houses upon the island but only a vast and turbulent bazaar and then he set the last book right side up turned and caroline walked coolly into the shop she was dressed in a jaunty but conventional walking costume he remembered this when he thought about it later her skirt was plaid pleated like a concertina her jacket was soft but brisk tan her shoes and spats were brown and her hat small and trim completed her like the top of a very expensive and beautifully filled candy box merlin breathless and startled advanced nervously toward her good afternoon he said and then stopped why he did not know except that it came to him that something very portentous in his life was about to occur and that it would need no furbishing but silence and the proper amount of expectant attention and in that minute before the thing began to happen he had the sense of a breathless second hanging suspended in time he saw through the glass partition that bounded off the little office the malevolent conical head of his employer mr moonlight quill bent over his correspondence he saw miss mccracken and miss masters as two patches of hair drooping over piles of paper he saw the crimson lamp overhead and noticed with a touch of pleasure how really pleasant and romantic it made the bookstore seem then the thing happened or rather it began to happen caroline picked up a volume of poems lying loose upon a pile fingered it absently with her slender white hand and suddenly with an easy gesture tossed it upward toward the ceiling where it disappeared in the crimson lamp and lodged there seen through the illuminated silk as a dark bulging rectangle this pleased her she broke into young contagious laughter in which merlin found himself presently joining it stayed up she cried merrily it stayed up didn't it to both of them this seemed the height of brilliant absurdity their laughter mingled filled the bookshop and merlin was glad to find that her voice was rich and full of sorcery try another he found himself suggesting try a red one at this her laughter increased and she had to rest her hands upon the stack to steady herself 
try another she managed to articulate between spasms of mirth ha oh golly try another try two yes try two oh i'll choke if i don't stop laughing here it goes suiting her action to the word she picked up a red book and sent it in a gentle hyperbola toward the ceiling where it sank into the lamp beside the first it was a few minutes before either of them could do more than rock back and forth in helpless glee but then by mutual agreement they took up the sport anew this time in unison merlin seized a large specially bound french classic and whirled it upward applauding his own accuracy he took a best-seller in one hand and a book on barnacles in the other and waited breathlessly while she made her shot then the business waxed fast and furious sometimes they alternated and watching he found how supple she was in every movement sometimes one of them made shot after shot picking up the nearest book sending it off merely taking time to follow it with a glance before reaching for another within three minutes they had cleared the little place on the table and the lamp of crimson satin was so bulging with books that it was near breaking silly game basketball she cried scornfully as a book left her hand high school girls play it in hideous bloomers idiotic he agreed she paused in the act of tossing a book and replaced it suddenly in its position on the table i think we've got room to sit down now she said gravely they had they had cleared an ample space for two with a faint touch of nervousness merlin glanced toward mr moonlight quill's glass partition but the three heads were still bent earnestly over their work and it was evident that they had not seen what had gone on in the shop so when caroline put her hands on the table and hoisted herself up merlin calmly imitated her and they sat side by side looking very earnestly at each other i had to see you she began with a rather pathetic expression in her brown eyes i know it was that last time she continued her voice trembling a little though she tried to keep it steady i was frightened i don't like you to eat off the dresser so i'm afraid you'll you'll swallow a collar button i did once almost he confessed reluctantly but it's not so easy you know i mean you can swallow the flat part easy enough or else the other part that is separately but for a whole collar button you'd have to have a specially made throat he was astonishing himself by the debonair appropriateness of his remarks words seemed for the first time in his life to run at him shrieking to be used gathering themselves into carefully arranged squads and platoons and being presented to him by punctilious adjutants of paragraphs that's what scared me she said i knew you had to have a specially made throat and i knew at least i felt sure that you didn't have one he nodded frankly i haven't it costs money to have one more money unfortunately than i possess he felt no shame in saying this rather a delight in making the admission he knew that nothing he could say or do would be beyond her comprehension least of all his poverty and the practical impossibility of ever extricating himself from it caroline looked down at her wrist-watch and with a little cry slid from the table to her feet it's after five she cried i didn't realize i have to be at the ritz at five-thirty let's hurry and get this done i've got a bet on it with one accord they set to work caroline began the matter by seizing a book on insects and sending it whizzing and finally crashing through the glass partition that housed mr moonlight quill the proprietor glanced up with a wild look brushed a few pieces of glass from his desk and went on with his letters miss mccracken gave no sign of having heard only miss masters started and gave a little frightened scream before she bent to her task again but to merlin and caroline it didn't matter in a perfect orgy of energy they were hurling book after book in all directions until sometimes three or four were in the air at once smashing against shelves cracking the glass of pictures on the walls falling in bruised and torn heaps upon the floor 
it was fortunate that no customers happened to come in for it is certain they would never have come in again the noise was too tremendous a noise of smashing and ripping and tearing mixed now and then with the tinkling of glass the quick breathing of the two throwers and the intermittent outbursts of laughter to which both of them periodically surrendered at five thirty carolyn tossed a last book at the lamp and gave the final impetus to the load it carried the weakened silk tore and dropped its cargo in one vast splattering of white and colour to the already littered floor then with a sigh of relief she turned to merlin and held out her hand good-bye she said simply are you going he knew she was his question was simply a lingering while to detain her and extract for another moment that dazzling essence of light he drew from her presence to continue his enormous satisfaction in her features which were like kisses and he thought like the features of a girl he had known back in nineteen ten for a minute he pressed the softness of her hand then she smiled and withdrew it and before he could spring to open the door she had done it herself and was gone out into the turbid and ominous twilight that brooded narrowly over forty-seventh street i would like to tell you how merlin having seen how beauty regards the wisdom of the years walked into the little partition of mr moonlight quill and gave up his job then and there thence issuing out into the street a much finer and nobler and increasingly ironic man but the truth is much more commonplace merlin granger stood up and surveyed the wreck of the bookshop the ruined volumes the torn silk remnants of the once beautiful crimson lamp the crystalline sprinkling of broken glass which lay in iridescent dust over the whole interior and then he went to a corner where the broom was kept and began cleaning up and rearranging and as far as he was able restoring the shop to its former condition he found that though some few of the books were uninjured most of them had suffered in varying extents the backs were off some the pages were torn from others still others were just slightly cracked in the front which as all careless book returners know makes a book unsaleable and therefore second-hand nevertheless by six o'clock he had done much to repair the damage he had returned the books to their original places swept the floor and put new lights in the sockets overhead the red shade itself was ruined beyond redemption and merlin thought in some trepidation that the money to replace it might have to come out of his salary at six therefore having done the best he could he crawled over the front window display to pull down the blind as he was treading delicately back he saw mr moonlight quill rise from his desk put on his overcoat and hat and emerge into the shop he nodded mysteriously at merlin and went toward the door with his hand on the knob he paused turned around and in a voice curiously compounded of ferocity and uncertainty he said if that girl comes in here again you tell her to behave with that he opened the door drowning merlin's meek yes sir in its creak and went out merlin stood there for a moment deciding wisely not to worry about what was for the present only a possible futurity and then he went into the back of the shop and invited miss masters to have supper with him at poolpot's french restaurant where one could still obtain red wine at dinner despite the great federal government miss masters accepted wine makes me feel all tingly she said merlin laughed inwardly as he compared her to carolyn or rather as he didn't compare her there was no comparison two mr moonlight quill mysterious exotic and oriental in temperament was nevertheless a man of decision and it was with decision that he approached the problem of his wrecked shop unless he should make an outlay equal to the original cost of his entire stock a step which for certain private reasons he did not wish to take it would be impossible for him to continue in business with the moonlight quill as before 
there was but one thing to do he promptly turned his establishment from an up-to-the-minute bookstore into a second-hand bookshop the damaged books were marked down from twenty-five to fifty per cent the name over the door whose serpentine embroidery had once shone so insolently bright was allowed to grow dim and take on the indescribably vague colour of old paint and having a strong penchant for ceremonial the proprietor went so far as to buy two skull-caps of shoddy red felt one for himself and one for his clerk merlin granger moreover he let his goatee grow until it resembled the tail-feathers of an ancient sparrow and substituted for a once dapper business suit a reverence-inspiring affair of shiny alpaca in fact within a year after caroline's catastrophic visit to the bookstore the only thing in it that preserved any resemblance of being up to date was miss masters miss mccracken had followed in the footsteps of mr moonlight quill and become an intolerable dowd for merlin too from a feeling compounded of loyalty and listlessness had let his exterior take on the semblance of a deserted garden he accepted the red felt skull-cap as a symbol of his decay always a young man known as a pusher he had been since the day of his graduation from the manual training department of a new york high school an inveterate brusher of clothes hair teeth and even eyebrows and had learned the value of laying all his clean socks toe upon toe and heel upon heel in a certain drawer of his bureau which would be known as the sock drawer these things he felt had won him his place in the greatest splendour of the moonlight quill it was due to them that he was not still making chests useful for keeping things as he was taught with breathless practicality in high school and selling them to whoever had use of such chests possibly undertakers nevertheless when the progressive moonlight quill became the retrogressive moonlight quill he preferred to sink with it and so took to letting his suits gather undisturbed the wispy burdens of the air and to throwing his socks indiscriminately into the shirt drawer the underwear drawer and even into no drawer at all it was not uncommon in his new carelessness to let many of his clean clothes go directly back into the laundry without having ever been worn a common eccentricity of impoverished bachelors and this in the face of his favourite magazines which at that time were fairly staggering with articles by successful authors against the frightful impudence of the condemned poor such as the buying of wearable shirts and nice cuts of meat and the fact that they preferred good investments in personal jewellery to respectable ones in four per cent savings banks it was indeed a strange state of affairs and a sorry one for many worthy and god-fearing men for the first time in the history of the republic almost any negro north of georgia could change a one-dollar bill but as at that time the cent was rapidly approaching the purchasing power of the chinese ubu and was only a thing you got back occasionally after paying for a soft drink and could use merely in getting your correct weight this was perhaps not so strange a phenomenon as it at first seems it was too curious a state of things however for merlin granger to take the step that he did take the hazardous almost involuntary step of proposing to miss masters stranger still that she accepted him it was at pulpat's on saturday night and over a dollar seventy five bottle of water diluted with vin ordinaire that their proposal occurred mine makes me feel all tingly doesn't it you chattered miss masters gaily yes answered merlin absently and then after a long and pregnant pause miss masters olive i want to say something to you if you'll listen to me the tingliness of miss masters who knew what was coming increased until it seemed that she would shortly be electrocuted by her own nervous reactions 
but her yes merlin came without a sign or flicker of interior disturbance merlin swallowed a stray bit of air that he found in his mouth i have no fortune he said with the manner of making an announcement i have no fortune at all their eyes met locked became wistful and dreamy and beautiful olive he told her i love you i love you too merlin she answered simply shall we have another bottle of wine yes he cried his heart beating at a great rate do you mean to drink to our engagement she interrupted bravely may it be a short one no he almost shouted bringing his fist fiercely down upon the table may it last forever what i mean oh i see what you mean you're right may it be a short one he laughed and added my error after the wine arrived they discussed the matter thoroughly we'll have to take a small apartment at first he said and i believe yes by golly i know there's a small one in the house where i live a big room and a sort of dressing-room kitchenette and the use of a bath on the same floor she clapped her hands happily and he thought how pretty she was really that is the upper part of her face from the bridge of the nose down she was somewhat out of true she continued enthusiastically and as soon as we can afford it we'll take a real swell apartment with an elevator and a telephone girl and after that a place in the country in a car i can't imagine nothing more fun can you merlin fell silent a moment he was thinking that he would have to give up his room the fourth floor rear yet it mattered very little now during the past year and a half in fact from the very date of caroline's visit to the moonlight quill he had never seen her for a week after that visit her lights had failed to go on darkness brooded out into the areaway seemed to grope blindly in at his expectant uncurtained window then the lights had appeared at last and instead of caroline and her callers they showed a stodgy family a little man with a bristly moustache and a full-bosomed woman who spent her evenings patting her hips and rearranging bric-a-brac after two days of them merlin had callously pulled down his shade no merlin could think of nothing more fun than rising in the world with olive there would be a cottage in the suburb a cottage painted blue just one class below the sort of cottages that are of white stucco with a green roof in the grass around the cottage would be rusty trowels and a broken green bench and a baby carriage with a wicker body that sagged to the left and around the grass and the baby carriage and the cottage itself around his whole world there would be the arms of olive a little stouter the arms of her neo-olivian period when as she walked her cheeks would tremble up and down ever so slightly from too much face massaging he could hear her voice now two spoons length away i knew you were going to say this tonight, merlin i could see she could see ah suddenly he wondered how much she could see could she see that the girl who had come in with a party of three men and sat down at the next table was caroline ah could she see that could she see that the men brought with them liquor far more potent than pulpat's red ink condensed threefold merlin stared breathlessly half hearing through an auditory ether olive's low soft monologue as like a persistent honey-bee she sucked sweetness from her memorable hour merlin was listening to the clinking of ice and the fine laughter of all four at some pleasantry and that laughter of caroline's that he knew so well stirred him lifted him called his heart imperiously over to her table whither it obediently went he could see her quite plainly and he fancied that in the last year and a half she had changed if ever so slightly was it the light or were her cheeks a little thinner and her eyes less fresh if more liquid than of old yet the shadows were still purple in her russet hair 
her mouth hinted yet of kisses as did the profile that came sometimes between his eyes and a row of books when it was twilight in the bookshop where the crimson lamp presided no more and she had been drinking the threefold flush on her cheeks was compounded of youth and wine and fine cosmetic that he could tell she was making great amusement for the young man on her left and the portly person on her right even for the old fellow opposite her for the latter from time to time uttered the shocked and mildly reproachful cackles of another generation merlin caught the words of a song she was intermittently singing just snap your fingers at care don't cross the bridge till you're there the portly person filled her glass with chill amber a waiter after several trips about the table and many helpless glances at caroline who was maintaining a cheerful futile questionnaire as to the succulence of this dish or that managed to obtain the semblance of an order and hurried away olive was speaking to merlin when then she asked her voice faintly shaded with disappointment he realized that he had just answered no to some question she had answered him oh sometime don't you care a rather pathetic poignancy in her question brought his eyes back to her as soon as possible dear he replied with surprising tenderness in two months in june so soon her delightful excitement quite took her breath away oh yes i think we'd better say june no use waiting olive began to pretend that two months was really too short a time for her to make preparations wasn't he a bad boy wasn't he impatient though well she'd show him he mustn't be too quick with her indeed he was so sudden she didn't exactly know whether she ought to marry him at all june he repeated sternly olive sighed and smiled and drank her coffee her little finger lifted high above the others in true refined fashion a stray thought came to merlin that he would like to buy five rings and throw at it my gosh he exclaimed aloud soon he would be putting rings on one of her fingers his eyes swung sharply to the right the party of four had become so riotous that the head waiter had approached and spoken to them caroline was arguing with this head waiter in a raised voice a voice so clear and young that it seemed as though the whole restaurant would listen the whole restaurant except olive masters self-absorbed in her new secret how do you do caroline was saying probably the handsomest head waiter in captivity too much noise very unfortunate something will have to be done about it gerald she addressed the man on her right the head waiter says there's too much noise appeals to us to have it stopped what'll i say shh remonstrated gerald with laughter shh and merlin heard him add in an undertone all the bourgeoisie will be aroused this is where the floor-walkers learn french caroline sat up straight in sudden alertness where's a floor-walker she cried show me a floor-walker this seemed to amuse the party for they all including caroline burst into renewed laughter the head-waiter after a last conscientious but despairing admonition became gallic with his shoulders and retired into the background Pulpats, as everyone knows, has the unvarying respectability of the table d'hote. It is not a gay place in the conventional sense. One comes, drinks the red wine, talks perhaps a little more and a little louder than usual under the low, smoky ceilings, and then goes home. It closes up at nine-thirty, tight as a drum. The policeman is paid off and given an extra bottle of wine for the missus. The coat-room girl hands her tips to the collector, and then darkness crushes the little round tables out of sight and life but excitement was prepared for pulpats this evening excitement of no mean variety a girl with russet purple-shadowed hair mounted to her table-top and began to dance thereon 
sacre nom de deux come down off there cried the head waiter stop that music but the musicians were already playing so loud that they could pretend not to hear his order having once been young they played louder and gayer than ever and carolyn danced with grace and vivacity her pink filmy dress swirling about her her agile arms playing in supple tenuous gestures along the smoky air a group of frenchmen at a table nearby broke into cries of applause in which other parties joined in a moment the room was full of clapping and shouting half the diners were on their feet crowding up and on the outskirts the hastily summoned proprietor was giving indistinct vocal evidences of his desire to put an end to this thing as quickly as possible merlin cried olive awake and aroused at last she's such a wicked girl let's get out now the fascinated merlin protested feebly that the check was not paid it's all right lay five dollars on the table i despise that girl i can't bear to look at her she was on her feet now tugging at merlin's arm helplessly listlessly and then with what amounted to downright unwillingness merlin rose followed olive dumbly as she picked her way through the delirious clamour now approaching its height and threatening to become a wild and memorable riot submissively he took his coat and stumbled up half a dozen steps into the moist april air outside his ears still ringing with the sound of light feet on the table and of laughter all about and over the little world of the cafe in silence they walked along toward fifth avenue and a bus it was not until next day that she told him about the wedding how she had moved the date forward it was much better that they should be married on the first of may three and married they were in a somewhat stuffy manner under the chandelier of the flat where olive lived with her mother after marriage came elation and then gradually the growth of weariness responsibility descended upon merlin the responsibility of making his thirty dollars a week and her twenty suffice to keep them respectably fat and to hide with decent garments the evidence that they were it was decided after several weeks of disastrous and well-nigh humiliating experiments with restaurants that they would join the great army of the delicatessen fed so he took up his old way of life again in that he stopped every evening at brig dort's delicatessen and bought potatoes in salad ham in slices and sometimes even stuffed tomatoes in bursts of extravagance then he would trudge homeward enter the dark hallway and climb three rickety flights of stairs covered by an ancient carpet of long obliterated design the hall had an ancient smell of the vegetables of eighteen eighty of the furniture polish in vogue when adam and eve bryan ran against william mckinley of portiers an ounce heavier with dust from worn-out shoes and lint from dresses turned long since into patchwork quilts this smell would pursue him up the stairs revivified and made poignant at each landing by the aura of contemporary cooking then as he began the next flight diminishing into the odor of the dead routine of dead generations eventually would occur the door of his room which slipped open with indecent willingness and closed with almost a sniff upon his hello dear got a treat for you tonight." olive who always rode home on the bus to get a morsel of air would be making the bed and hanging up things at his call she would come up to him and give him a quick kiss with wide open eyes while he held her upright like a ladder his hands on her two arms as though she were a thing without equilibrium and would once he relinquished hold fall swiftly backward to the floor this is the kiss that comes in with the second year of marriage succeeding the bridegroom kiss 
which is rather stagey at best say those who know about such things and apt to be copied from passionate movies then came supper and after that they went out for a walk up two blocks and through central park or sometimes to a moving picture which taught them patiently that they were the sort of people for whom life was ordered and that something very grand and brave and beautiful would soon happen to them if they were docile and obedient to their rightful superiors and kept away from pleasure such was their day for three years then change came into their lives olive had a baby and as a result merlin had a new influx of material resources in the third week of olive's confinement after an hour of nervous rehearsing he went into the office of mr moonlight quill and demanded an enormous increase in salary i've been here ten years he said since i was nineteen i've always tried to do my best in the interests of the business mr moonlight quill said that he would think it over next morning he announced to merlin's great delight that he was going to put into effect a project long premeditated he was going to retire from active work in the bookshop confining himself to periodic visits and leaving merlin as manager with a salary of fifty dollars a week and a one-tenth interest in the business when the old man finished merlin's cheeks were glowing and his eyes full of tears he seized his employer's hand and shook it violently saying over and over again it's very nice of you sir it's very white of you it's very very nice of you so after ten years of faithful work in the store he had won out at last looking back he saw his own progress toward this hill of elation no longer as a sometimes sordid and always grey decade of worry and failing enthusiasm and failing dreams years when the moonlight had grown duller in the areaway and the youth had faded out of olive's face but as a glorious and triumphant climb over obstacles which he had determinedly surmounted by unconquerable will-power the optimistic self-delusion that had kept him from misery was seen now in the golden garments of stern resolution half a dozen times he had taken steps to leave the moonlight quill and soar upward but through sheer faint-heartedness he had stayed on strangely enough he now thought that those were times when he had exerted tremendous persistence and had determined to fight it out where he was at any rate let us not for the moment begrudge merlin his new and magnificent view of himself he had arrived he left the shop that evening fairly radiant invested every penny in his pocket in the most tremendous feast that Brigdort's delicatessen offered and staggered homeward with the great news and four gigantic paper bags the fact that olive was too sick to eat that he made himself faintly but unmistakably ill by a struggle with four stuffed tomatoes and that most of the food deteriorated rapidly in an iceless ice-box all next day did not mar the occasion for the first time since the week of his marriage merlin granger lived under a sky of unclouded tranquillity the baby boy was christened arthur and life became dignified significant and at length centred merlin and olive resigned themselves to a somewhat secondary place in their own cosmos but what they lost in personality they regained in a sort of primordial pride the country house did not come but a month in an ashbury park boarding-house each summer filled the gap and during merlin's two weeks holiday this excursion assumed the air of a really merry jaunt especially when with the baby asleep in a wide room opening technically on the sea merlin strolled with olive along the thronged boardwalk puffing at his cigar and trying to look like twenty thousand a year 
with some alarm at the slowing up of the days and the accelerating of the years merlin became thirty-one thirty-two then almost with a rush arrived at that age which with all its washing and panning can only muster a bare handful of the precious stuff of youth he became thirty-five and one day on fifth avenue he saw caroline it was sunday a radiant flowerful easter morning and the avenue was a pageant of lilies and cutaways and happy april colored bonnets twelve o'clock the great churches were letting out their people st simon's st hilda's the church of the epistles opened their doors like wide mouths until the people pouring forth surely resembled happy laughter as they met and strolled and chattered or else waved white bouquets at the waiting chauffeurs in front of the church of the epistles stood its twelve vestrymen carrying out the time-honored custom of giving away easter eggs full of face powder to the church-going debutantes of the year around them delightedly danced the two thousand miraculously groomed children of the very rich correctly cute and curled shining like sparkling little jewels upon their mother's fingers speaks the sentimentalist for the children of the poor ah but the children of the rich laundered sweet-smelling complexioned of the country and above all with soft indoor voices little arthur was five child of the middle class undistinguished unnoticed with a nose that forever marred what grecian yearnings his features might have had he held tightly to his mother's warm sticky hand and with merlin on his other side moved upon the homecoming throng at fifty-third street where there were two churches the congestion was at its thickest its richest their progress was of necessity retarded to such an extent that even little arthur had not the slightest difficulty in keeping up then it was that merlin perceived an open landaulet of deepest crimson with handsome nickel trimmings glide slowly up to the curb and come to a stop in it sat caroline she was dressed in black a tight-fitting gown trimmed with lavender flowered at the waist with a corsage of orchids merlin started and then gazed at her fearfully for the first time in the eight years since his marriage he was encountering the girl again but a girl no longer her figure was slim as ever or perhaps not quite for a certain boyish swagger a sort of insolent adolescence had gone the way of the first blooming of her cheeks but she was beautiful dignity was there now and the charming lines of a fortuitous nine-and-twenty and she sat in the car with such perfect appropriateness and self-possession that it made him breathless to watch her suddenly she smiled the smile of old bright as that very easter and its flowers mellower than ever yet somehow with not quite the radiance and infinite promise of that first smile back there in the bookshop nine years before it was a steelier smile disillusioned and sad but it was soft enough and smile enough to make a pair of young men in cutaway coats hurry over to pull their high hats off their wetted iridescent hair to bring them flustered and bowing to the edge of her landaulet where her lavender gloves gently touched their grey ones and these two were presently joined by another and then two more until there was a rapidly swelling crowd around the landaulet merlin would hear a young man beside him say to his perhaps well-favoured companion if you'll just pardon me a moment there's some one i have to speak to walk right ahead i'll catch up within three minutes every inch of the landaulet front and back and side was occupied by a man a man trying to construct a sentence clever enough to find its way to caroline through the stream of conversation 
luckily for merlin a portion of little arthur's clothing had chosen the opportunity to threaten a collapse and olive had hurriedly rushed him over against a building for some extemporaneous repair work so merlin was able to watch unhindered the salon in the street the crowd swelled a row formed in back of the first two more behind that in the midst an orchid rising from a black bouquet sat caroline enthroned in her obliterated car nodding and crying salutations and smiling with such true happiness that of a sudden a new relay of gentlemen had left their wives and consorts and were striding toward her the crowd now phalanx deep began to be augmented by the merely curious men of all ages who could not possibly have known caroline jostled over and melted into the circle of ever-increasing diameter until the lady in lavender was the centre of a vast impromptu auditorium all about her were faces clean-shaven bewhiskered old young ageless and now here and there a woman the mass was rapidly spreading to the opposite curb and as st anthony's around the corner let out its box-holders it overflowed to the sidewalk and crushed up against the iron picket fence of a millionaire across the street the motors speeding along the avenue were compelled to stop and in a jiffy were piled three five and six deep at the edge of the crowd auto buses top heavy turtles of traffic plunged into the jam their passengers crowding to the edges of the roofs in wild excitement and peering down into the centre of the mass which presently could hardly be seen from the mass's edge the crush had become terrific no fashionable audience at a yale princeton football game no damp mob at a world series could be compared with the panoply that talked stared laughed and honked about the lady in black and lavender it was stupendous it was terrible a quarter mile down the block a half frantic policeman called his precinct on the same corner a frightened civilian crashed in the glass of a fire alarm and sent in a wild paean for all the fire engines of the city up in an apartment high in one of the tall buildings a hysterical old maid telephoned in turn for the prohibition enforcement agent the special deputies on bolshevism and the maternity ward of bellevue hospital the noise increased the first fire engine arrived filling the sunday air with smoke clanging and crying a brazen metallic message down the high resounding walls in the notion that some terrible calamity had overtaken the city two excited deacons ordered special services immediately and set tolling the great bells of st hilda's and st anthony's presently joined by the jealous gongs of st simon's and the church of the epistles even far off in the hudson and the east river the sounds of the commotion were heard and the ferry-boats and tugs and ocean liners set up sirens and whistles that sailed in melancholy cadence now varied now reiterated across the whole diagonal width of the city from riverside drive to the grey waterfronts of the lower east side in the centre of her landaulet sat the lady in black and lavender chatting pleasantly first with one then another of that fortunate few in cutaways who had found their way to speaking distance in the first rush after a while she glanced around her and beside her with a look of growing annoyance she yawned and asked the man nearest her if he couldn't run in somewhere and get her a glass of water the man apologized in some embarrassment he could not have moved hand or foot he could not have scratched his own ear as the first blast of the river sirens keened along the air olive fastened the last safety pin in little arthur's rompers and looked up merlin saw her start 
stiffen slowly like hardening stucco and then give a little gasp of surprise and disapproval that woman she cried suddenly oh she flashed a glance at merlin that mingled reproach and pain and without another word gathered up little arthur with one hand grasped her husband by the other and darted amazingly in a winding bumping canter through the crowd somehow people gave way before her somehow she managed to retain her grasp on her son and husband somehow she managed to emerge two blocks up battered and dishevelled into an open space and without slowing up her pace darted down a side street then at last when uproar had died away into a dim and distant clamour did she come to a walk and set little arthur upon his feet and on sunday too hasn't she disgraced herself enough this was her only comment she said it to arthur as she seemed to address her remarks to arthur throughout the remainder of the day for some curious and esoteric reason she had never once looked at her husband during the entire retreat four the years between thirty-five and sixty-five revolved before the passive mind as one unexplained confusing merry-go-round true they are a merry-go-round of ill-gated and wind-broken horses painted first in pastel colours then in dull greys and browns but perplexing and intolerably dizzy the thing is as never were the merry-go-rounds of childhood or adolescence as never surely were the certain coarse dynamic roller-coasters of youth for most men and women these thirty years are taken up with a gradual withdrawal from life a retreat first from a front with many shelters those myriad amusements and curiosities of youth to a line with less when we peel down our ambitions to one ambition our recreations to one recreation our friends to a few to whom we are anaesthetic ending up at last in a solitary desolate strong point that is not strong where the shells now whistle abominably now are but half heard as by turns frightened and tired we sit waiting for death at forty then merlin was no different from himself at thirty-five a larger paunch a grey twinkling near his ears a more certain lack of vivacity in his walk his forty-five differed from his forty by a like margin unless one mention of a slight deafness in his left ear but at fifty-five the process had become a chemical change of immense rapidity yearly he was more and more an old man to his family senile almost so far as his wife was concerned he was by this time complete owner of the bookshop the mysterious mr moonlight quill dead some five years and not survived by his wife had deeded the whole stock and store to him and there he still spent his days conversant now by name with almost all that man has recorded for three thousand years a human catalogue an authority upon tooling and binding upon folios and first editions an accurate inventory of a thousand authors whom he could never have understood and had certainly never read at sixty-five he distinctly doddered he had assumed the melancholy habits of the age so often portrayed by the second old man in standard victorian comedies he consumed vast warehouses of time searching for mislaid spectacles he nagged his wife and was nagged in turn he told the same jokes three or four times a year at the family table and gave his son weird impossible directions as to his conduct in life mentally and materially he was so entirely different from the merlin granger of twenty-five that it seemed incongruous that he should bear the same name 
he worked still in the bookshop with the assistance of a youth whom of course he considered very idle indeed and a new young woman miss gaffney miss mccracken ancient and unvenerable as himself still kept the accounts young arthur was gone into wall street to sell bonds as all the young men seemed to be doing in that day this of course was as it should be let old merlin get what magic he could from his books the place of young king arthur was in the counting-house one afternoon at four when he had slipped noiselessly up to the front of the store on his soft-soled slippers led by a newly formed habit of which to be fair he was rather ashamed of spying upon the young man-clerk he looked casually out of the front window straining his faded eyesight to reach the street a limousine large portentous impressive had drawn to the curb and the chauffeur after dismounting and holding some sort of conversation with persons in the interior of the car turned about and advanced in a bewildered fashion toward the entrance of the moonlight quill he opened the door shuffled in and glancing uncertainly at the old man in the skull-cap addressed him in a thick murky voice as though his words came through a fog do you do you sell additions merlin nodded the arithmetic books are in the back of the store the chauffeur took off his cap and scratched a close-cropped fuzzy head oh nah this i wants a detective story he jerked a thumb back toward the limousine she's seen it in the paper first edition merlin's interest quickened here was possibly a big sale oh additions yes we've advertised some firsts but detective stories i don't believe what was the title i forgot about a crime i have well i have the crimes of the borgias full morocco london seventeen sixty nine beautifully ah interrupted the chauffeur this was one fellow did this crime she seen you had it for sale in the paper he rejected several possible titles with the air of connoisseur silver bones he announced suddenly out of a slight pause what demanded merlin suspecting that the stiffness of his sinews were being commented upon silver bones that was the guy that done the crime silver bones silver bones indian maybe merlin stroked his grisly cheeks gee mister went on the prospective purchaser if you want to save me an awful bawlin out just try and think the old lady goes wild if everything don't run smooth but merlin's musings on the subject of silver bones were as futile as his obliging search through the shelves and five minutes later a very dejective charioteer wound his way back to his mistress through the glass merlin could see the visible symbols of a tremendous uproar going on in the interior of the limousine the chauffeur made wild appealing gestures of his innocence evidently to no avail for when he turned around and climbed back into the driver's seat his expression was not a little dejected then the door of the limousine opened and gave forth a pale and slender young man of about twenty dressed in the attenuation of fashion and carrying a wisp of a cane he entered the shop walked past merlin and proceeded to take out a cigarette and light it merlin approached him anything i can do for you sir old boy said the youth coolly there are severe things you can first let me smoke my ciggy here out of sight of that old lady in the limousine who happens to be my grandmother her knowledge as to whether i smoke it or not before my majority happens to be a matter of five thousand dollars to me 
the second thing is that you should look up your first edition of the crime of sylvester bonard that you advertised in last sunday's times my grandmother there happens to want to take it off your hands detective story crime of somebody silver bones all was explained with a faint deprecatory chuckle as if to say that he would have enjoyed this had life put him in the habit of enjoying anything merlin doddered away to the back of his shop where his treasures were kept to get his latest investment which he had picked up rather cheaply at the sale of a big collection when he returned with it the young man was drawing on his cigarette and blowing out quantities of smoke with immense satisfaction my god he said she keeps me so close to her the entire day running idiotic errands that this happens to be my first puff in six hours what's the world coming to i ask you when a feeble old lady in the milk toast era can dictate to a man as to his personal vices i happen to be unwilling to be so dictated to let's see the book merlin passed it to him tenderly and the young man after opening it with a carelessness that gave a momentary jump to the book dealer's heart ran through the pages with his thumb no illustrations eh he commented well old boy what's it worth speak up we're willing to give you a fair price though why i don't know one hundred dollars said merlin with a frown the young man gave a startled whistle <whistles> come on you're not dealing with somebody from the corn belt i happen to be a city-bred man and my grandmother happens to be a city-bred woman though i'll admit it'd take a special tax appropriation to keep her in repair we'll give you twenty-five dollars and let me tell you that's liberal we've got books in our attic up in our attic with my old playthings that were written before the old boy that wrote this was born merlin stiffened expressing a rigid and meticulous horror did your grandmother give you twenty-five dollars to buy this with she did not she gave me fifty but she expects change i know that old lady you tell her said merlin with dignity that she has missed a very great bargain give you forty urged the young man come on now be reasonable and don't try to hold us up merlin had wheeled around with the precious volume under his arm and was about to return it to its special drawer in his office when there was a sudden interruption with unheard-of magnificence the front door burst rather than swung open and admitted in the dark interior a regal apparition in black silk and fur which bore rapidly down upon him the cigarette leaped from the fingers of the urban young man and he gave breath to an inadvertent bam but it was upon merlin that the entrance seemed to have the most remarkable and incongruous effect so strong an effect that the greatest treasure of his shop slipped from his hand and joined to the cigarette on the floor before him stood caroline she was an old woman an old woman remarkably preserved unusually handsome unusually erect but still an old woman her hair was a soft beautiful white elaborately dressed and jewelled her face faintly rouged a la grande dame showed webs of wrinkles at the edges of her eyes and two deeper lines in the form of stanchions connected her nose and the corners of her mouth her eyes were dim ill-natured and querulous but it was caroline without a doubt caroline's features though in decay caroline's figure brittle and stiff in movement caroline's manner unmistakably compounded of a delightful insolence and an enviable self-assurance and most of all caroline's voice broken and shaky yet with a ring in it that still could and did make chauffeurs want to drive laundry wagons and cause cigarettes to fall from the fingers of urban grandsons she stood and sniffed 
her eyes found the cigarette upon the floor what's that she cried the words were not a question they were an entire litany of suspicion accusation confirmation and decision she tarried over them scarcely an instant stand up she said to her grandson stand up and blow that nicotine out of your lungs the young man looked at her in trepidation blow she commanded he pursed his lips feebly and blew into the air blow she repeated more peremptorily than before he blew again helplessly ridiculously do you realize she went on that you've forfeited five thousand dollars in five minutes merlin momentarily expected the young man to fall pleading upon his knees but such is the nobility of human nature that he remained standing even blew again into the air partly from nervousness partly no doubt with some vague hope of re-ingratiating himself young ass cried caroline once more just once more and you leave college and go to work this threat had such an overwhelming effect upon the young man that he took an even paler pallor than was natural to him but caroline was not through do you think i don't know what you and your brothers yes and your asinine father too think of me well i do you think i'm senile you think i'm soft i'm not she struck herself with her fist as though to prove that she was a mass of muscle and sinew and i'll have more brains left when you've got me laid out in the drawing-room some sunny day than you and the rest of them were born with but grandmother be quiet you a thin little stick of a boy who if it weren't for my money might have risen to be a journeyman barber in the bronx let me see your hands ah the hands of a barber you presume to be smart with me who once had three counts and a bona fide duke not to mention half a dozen papal titles pursue me from the city of rome to the city of new york she paused took breath stand up blow the young man obediently blew simultaneously the door opened and an excited gentleman of middle age who wore a coat and hat trimmed with fur and seemed moreover to be trimmed with the same sort of fur himself on upper lip and chin rushed into the store and up to caroline found you at last he cried been looking for you all over town tried your house on the phone and your secretary told me he thought you'd gone to a bookshop called the moonlight caroline turned to him irritably do i employ you for your reminiscences she snapped are you my tutor or my broker your broker confessed the fur-trimmed man taken somewhat aback i beg your pardon i came about that phonograph stock i can sell for a hundred and five and do it very well i thought i'd better go sell it i'm talking to my grandson very well i good-bye good-bye madam the fur-trimmed man made a slight bow and turned in some confusion from the shop as for you said caroline turning to her grandson you stay just where you are and be quiet she turned to merlin and included his entire length in a not unfriendly survey then she smiled and he found himself smiling too in an instant they both had broken into a cracked but none the less spontaneous chuckle she seized his arm and hurried him to the other side of the store there they stopped faced each other and gave vent to another long fit of senile glee it's the only way she gasped in a sort of triumphant malignity the only thing that keeps old folks like me happy is the sense that they can make other people step around to be old and rich and have poor descendants is almost as much fun as to be young and beautiful and have ugly sisters oh yes chuckled merlin i know i envy you she nodded blinking the last time i was in here forty years ago she said you were a young man very anxious to kick up your heels i was he confessed my visit must have meant a good deal to you 
you have all along he exclaimed i thought i used to think at first that you were a real person human i mean she laughed many men have thought me inhuman but now continued merlin excitedly i understand understanding is allowed to us old people after nothing much matters i see now that on a certain night when you danced upon a table-top you were nothing but my romantic yearning for a beautiful and perverse woman her old eyes were far away her voice no more than an echo of a forgotten dream how i danced that night i remember you were making an attempt at me olive's arms were closing about me and you warned me to be free and keep my measure of youth and irresponsibility but it seemed like an effect gotten up at the last moment it came too late you are very old she said inscrutably i did not realize also i have not forgotten what you did to me when i was thirty-five you shook me with that traffic tie-up it was a magnificent effort the beauty and power you radiated you became personified even to my wife and she feared you for weeks i wanted to slip out of the house at dark and forget the stuffiness of life with music and cocktails and a girl to make me young but then i no longer knew how and now you are so very old with a sort of awe she moved back and away from him yes leave me he cried you are old also the spirit withers with the skin have you come here only to tell me something i had best forget that to be old and poor is sometimes more wretched than to be old and rich to remind me that my son hurls my grey failure in my face give me my book she commanded harshly be quick old man merlin looked at her once more and then patiently obeyed he picked up the book and handed it to her shaking his head when she offered him a bill why go through the farce of paying me once you made me wreck these very premises i did she said in anger and i'm glad perhaps there had been enough done to ruin me she gave him a glance half disdain half ill-conceived uneasiness and with a brisk word to her urban grandson moved toward the door then she was gone out of his shop out of his life the door clicked with a sigh he turned and walked brokenly back toward the glass partition that enclosed the yellow accounts of many years as well as the mellowed wrinkled miss mccracken merlin regarded her parched cobwebbed face with an odd sort of pity she at any rate had had less from life than he no rebellious romantic spirit popping out unbidden had in its memorable moments given her life a zest and a glory then miss mccracken looked up and spoke to him still a spunky old piece isn't she merlin started who old alicia dare mrs thomas allardyce she is now of course has been these thirty years what i don't understand you merlin sat down suddenly in his swivel chair his eyes were wide why surely mr granger you can't tell me that you've forgotten her when for ten years she was the most notorious character in new york why one time when she was the correspondent in the throckmorton divorce case she attracted so much attention on fifth avenue that there was a traffic tie-up didn't you read about it in the papers i never used to read the papers his ancient brain was whirring well you can't have forgotten the time she came in here and ruined the business let me tell you i came near asking mr moonlight quill for my salary and clearing out do you mean that you saw her saw her how could i help it with the racket that went on heaven knows mr moonlight quill didn't like it either but of course he didn't say anything he was daffy about her and she could twist him around her little finger the second he opposed one of her whims she'd threatened to tell his wife on him served him right the idea of that man falling for a pretty adventuress of course 
he was never rich enough for her even though the shop paid well in those days but when i saw her stammered merlin that is when i thought saw her she lived with her mother mother trash said miss mccracken indignantly she had a woman there she called auntie who was no more related to her than i am oh she was a bad one but clever right after the throckmorton divorce case she married thomas allardyce and made herself secure for life who was she cried merlin for god's sake what was she a witch why she was alicia dare the dancer of course in those days you couldn't pick up a paper without finding her picture merlin sat very quiet his brain suddenly fatigued and stilled he was an old man now indeed so old that it was impossible for him to dream of ever having been young so old that the glamour was gone out of the world passing not into the faces of children and into the persistent comforts of warmth and life but passing out of the range of sight and feeling he was never to smile again or to sit a long reverie when spring evenings wafted the cries of children in at his window until gradually they became the friends of his boyhood out there urging him to come and play before the last dark came down he was too old now even for memories that night he sat at supper with his wife and son who had used him for their blind purposes olive said don't sit there like a death's head say something let him sit quiet growled arthur if you encourage him he'll tell us a story we've heard a hundred times before merlin went upstairs very quietly at nine o'clock when he was in his room and had closed the door tight he stood by it for a moment his thin limbs trembling he knew now that he had always been a fool oh russet witch but it was too late he had angered providence by resisting too many temptations there was nothing left but heaven where he would meet only those who like him had wasted earth end of section ten read by don w jenkins rancho san diego california shaggybark.blogspot.com Section 11 of Tales of the Jazz Age by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Don W. Jenkins. The Lees of Happiness. If you should look through the files of old magazines for the first years of the present century, you would find, sandwiched in between the stories of Richard Harding Davis and Frank Norris, and others long since dead the work of one geoffrey curtin a novel or two and perhaps three or four dozen short stories you could if you were interested follow them along until say nineteen o eight when they suddenly disappeared when you had read them all you would have been quite sure that there were no masterpieces here were passably amusing stories a bit out of date now but doubtless the sort that would then have whiled away a dreary hour in a dental office the man who did them was of good intelligence talented glib probably young in the samples of his work you found there would have been nothing to stir you to more than a faint interest in the whims of life no deep interior laughs no sense of futility or hint of tragedy 
after reading them you would yawn and put the number back in the files and perhaps if you were in some library reading room you would decide that by way of variety you would look at a newspaper of the period and see whether the japs had taken port arthur but if by any chance the newspaper you had chosen was the right one and had crackled open at the theatrical page your eyes would have been arrested and held and for at least a minute you would have forgotten port arthur as quickly as you forgot chateau thierry for you would by this fortunate chance be looking at the portrait of an exquisite woman those were the days of floradora and of sextets of pinched in waists and blown out sleeves of almost bustles and absolute ballet skirts but here without doubt disguised as she might be by the unaccustomed stiffness and old fashion of her costume was a butterfly of butterflies here was the gaiety of the period the soft wine of eyes the songs that flurried hearts the toasts and the bouquets the dances and the dinners here was a venus of the hansom cab the gibson girl in her glorious prime here was here was you find by looking at the name beneath one roxanne milbank who had been chorus girl and understudy in the daisy chain but who by reason of an excellent performance when the star was indisposed had gained a leading part you would look again and wonder why you had never heard of her why did her name not linger in popular songs and vaudeville jokes and cigar bands and in the memory of that gay old uncle of yours along with lillian russell and stella mayhew and anna held roxanne milbank whither had she gone what dark trap-door had opened suddenly and swallowed her up her name was certainly not in last sunday's supplement on the list of actresses married to english noblemen no doubt she was dead poor beautiful young lady and quite forgotten i am hoping too much i am having you stumble on geoffrey curtins's stories and roxanne milbank's picture it would be incredible that you should find a newspaper item six months later a single item two inches by four which informed the public of the marriage very quietly of miss roxanne milbank who had been on tour with the daisy chain to mr geoffrey curtain the popular author mrs curtain it added dispassionately will retire from the stage it was a marriage of love he was sufficiently spoiled to be charming she was ingenuous enough to be irresistible like two floating logs they met in a head-on rush caught and sped along together yet had geoffrey curtain kept at scrivening for two score years he could not have put a quirk into one of his stories weirder than the quirk that came into his own life had roxanne milbank played three dozen parts and filled five thousand houses she could never have had a role with more happiness and more despair than were in the fate prepared for roxanne curtain for a year they lived in hotels travelled to california to alaska to florida to mexico loved and quarrelled gently and gloried in the golden triflings of his wit with her beauty they were young and gravely dispassionate they demanded everything and then yielded everything again in ecstasies of unselfishness and pride she loved the swift tones of his voice and his frantic if unfounded jealousy he loved her dark radiance the white irises of her eyes the warm lustrous enthusiasm of her smile don't you like her he would demand rather excitedly and shyly isn't she wonderful did you ever see yes they would answer grinning she's a wonder you're lucky 
the year passed they tired of hotels they bought an old house and twenty acres near the town of marlowe half an hour from chicago bought a little car and moved out riotously with a pioneering hallucination that would have confounded balboa your room will be here they cried in turn and then and my room here and the nursery here when we have children and we'll build a sleeping porch oh next year they moved out in april in july jeffrey's closest friend harry cromwell came to spend a week they met him at the end of the long lawn and hurried him proudly to the house harry was married also his wife had had a baby some six months before and was still recuperating at her mother's in new york roxanne had gathered from jeffrey that harry's wife was not as attractive as harry jeffrey had met her once and considered her shallow but harry had been married nearly two years and was apparently happy so jeffrey guessed that she was probably all right i'm making biscuits chattered roxanne gravely can your wife make biscuits the cook is showing me how i think every woman should know how to make biscuits it sounds so utterly disarming a woman who can make biscuits can surely do no you'll have to come out here and live said jeffrey get a place out in the country like us for you and kitty you don't know kitty she hates the country she's got to have her theatres and vaudevilles bring her out repeated jeffrey we'll have a colony there's an awfully nice crowd here already bring her out they were at the porch steps now and roxanne made a brisk gesture toward a dilapidated structure on the right the garage she announced it will also be jeffrey's writing-room within the month meanwhile dinner is at seven meanwhile to that i will mix a cocktail the two men ascended to the second floor that is they ascended halfway for at the first landing jeffrey dropped his guest's suitcase and in a cross between a query and cry exclaimed for god's sake harry how do you like her we will go upstairs answered the guest and we will shut the door half an hour later as they were sitting together in the library roxanne reissued from the kitchen bearing before her a pan of biscuits jeffrey and harry arose they're beautiful dear said the husband intensely exquisite murmured harry roxanne beamed taste one i couldn't bear to touch them before you'd seen them all and i can't bear to take them back until i find out what they taste like like manna darling simultaneously the two men raised the biscuits to their lips nibbled tentatively simultaneously they tried to, to change the subject but roxanne undeceived set down the pan and seized a biscuit after a second her comment rang out with lugubrious finality absolutely bum really why i didn't notice roxanne roared oh i'm useless she cried laughing turn me out jeffrey i'm a parasite i'm no goal jeffrey put his arm around her darling i'll eat your biscuits they're beautiful anyway insisted roxanne they're they're decorative suggested harry jeffrey took him up wildly that's the word they're decorative they're masterpieces we'll use them he rushed to the kitchen and returned with a hammer and a handful of nails we'll use them by golly roxanne we'll make a freeze out of them don't wailed roxanne our beautiful house never mind we're going to have the library repapered in october don't you remember well bang the first biscuit was impaled to the wall where it quivered for a moment like a live thing bang 
when roxanne returned with a second round of cocktails the biscuits were in a perpendicular row twelve of them like a collection of primitive spearheads roxanne exclaimed jeffrey you're an artist cook nonsense you shall illustrate my books during the dinner the twilight faltered into dusk and later it was a starry dark outside filled and permeated with the frail gorgeousness of roxanne's white dress and her tremulous low laugh such a little girl she is thought harry not as old as kitty he compared the two kitty nervous without being sensitive temperamental without temperament a woman who seemed to flit and never light and roxanne who was as young as spring night and summed up in her own adolescent laughter a good match for geoffrey he thought again two very young people the sort who'll stay very young until they suddenly find themselves old harry thought these things between his constant thoughts about kitty he was depressed about kitty it seemed to him that she was well enough to come back to chicago and bring his little son he was thinking vaguely of kitty when he said good-night to his friend's wife and his friend at the foot of the stairs you're our first real house guest called roxanne after him aren't you thrilled and proud when he was out of sight around the stair corner she turned to geoffrey who was standing beside her resting his hand on the end of the banister are you tired my dearest geoffrey rubbed the centre of his forehead with his fingers a little how did you know oh how could i help knowing about you it's a headache he said moodily splitting i'll take some aspirin she reached over and snapped out the light and with his arm tight about her waist they walked up the stairs together two harry's week passed they drove about the dreaming lanes or idled in cheerful inanity upon lake or lawn in the evening roxanne sitting inside played to them while the ashes whitened on the glowing ends of their cigars then came a telegram from kitty saying that she wanted harry to come east and get her so roxanne and geoffrey were left alone in that privacy of which they never seemed to tire alone thrilled them again they wandered about the house each feeling intimately the presence of the other they sat on the same side of the table like honeymooners they were intensely absorbed intensely happy the town of marlowe though a comparatively old settlement had only recently acquired a society five or six years before alarmed at the smoky swelling of chicago two or three young married couples bungalow people had moved out their friends had followed the jeffrey curtains found an already formed set prepared to welcome them a country club ballroom and golf links yawned for them and there were bridge parties and poker parties and parties where they drank beer and parties where they drank nothing at all it was at a poker party that they found themselves a week after harry's departure there were two tables and a good proportion of the young wives were smoking and shouting their bets and being very daringly mannish for those days roxanne had left the game early and taken to perambulation she wandered into the pantry and found herself some grape juice beer gave her a headache and then passed from table to table looking over shoulders at the hands keeping an eye on geoffrey and being pleasantly unexcited and content geoffrey with intense concentration was raising a pile of chips of all colors and roxanne knew by the deepened wrinkle between his eyes that he was interested she liked to see him interested in small things she crossed over quietly and sat down on the arm of his chair 
she sat there five minutes listening to the sharp intermittent comments of the men and the chatter of the women which rose from the table like soft smoke and yet scarcely hearing either then quite innocently she reached out her hand intending to place it on geoffrey's shoulder as it touched him he started of a sudden gave a short grunt and sweeping back his arm furiously caught her a glancing blow on her elbow there was a general gasp roxanne regained her balance gave a little cry and rose quickly to her feet it had been the greatest shock of her life this from geoffrey the heart of kindness of consideration this instinctively brutal gesture the gasp became a silence a dozen eyes were turned on geoffrey who looked up as though seeing roxanne for the first time an expression of bewilderment settled on his face why roxanne he said haltingly in a dozen minds entered a quick suspicion a rumor of scandal could it be that behind the scenes with this couple apparently so in love lurked some curious antipathy why else this streak of fire across such a cloudless heaven geoffrey roxanne's voice was pleading startled and horrified she yet knew that it was a mistake not once did it occur to her to blame him or to resent it her word was a trembling supplication tell me geoffrey it said tell roxanne your own roxanne why roxanne began geoffrey again the bewildered look changed to pain he was clearly as startled as she i didn't intend that he went on you startled me you i felt as if someone were attacking me i how why how idiotic geoffrey again the word was a prayer incense offered up to a high god through this new and unfathomable darkness they were both on their feet they were saying good-bye faltering apologizing explaining there was no attempt to pass it off easily that way lay sacrilege geoffrey had not been feeling well they said he had become nervous back of both their minds was the unexplained horror of that blow the marvel that there had been for an instant something between them his anger and her fear and now to both a sorrow momentary no doubt but to be bridged at once at once while there was yet time was that swift water lashing under their feet the fierce glint of some uncharted chasm out in their car under the harvest moon he talked brokenly it was just incomprehensible to him he said he had been thinking of the poker game absorbed and the touch on his shoulder had seemed like an attack an attack he clung to that word flung it up as a shield he had hated what touched him with the impact of his hand it had gone that nervousness that was all he knew both their eyes filled with tears and they whispered love there under the broad night as the serene streets of marlowe sped by later when they went to bed they were quite calm geoffrey was to take a week off all work was simply to loll and sleep and go on long walks until this nervousness left him when they had decided this safety settled down upon roxanne the pillows under head became soft and friendly the bed on which they lay seemed wide and white and sturdy beneath the radiance that streamed in the window five days later in the first cool of late afternoon geoffrey picked up an oak chair and sent it crashing through his own front window then he lay down on the couch like a child weeping piteously and begging to die a blood clot the size of a marble had broken his brain three 
there is a sort of waking nightmare that sets in sometimes when one has missed a sleep or two a feeling that comes with extreme fatigue and a new sun that the quality of life around has changed it is a fully articulate conviction that somehow the existence one is then leading is a branch shoot of life and is related to life only as a moving picture or a mirror that the people and streets and houses are only projections from a very dim and chaotic past it was in such a state that roxanne found herself during the first months of jeffrey's illness she slept only when she was utterly exhausted she awoke under a cloud the long sober-voiced consultations the faint aura of medicine in the halls the sudden tiptoeing in a house that had echoed to many cheerful footsteps and most of all jeffrey's white face amid the pillows of the bed they had shared these things subdued her and made her indelibly older the doctors held out hope but that was all a long rest they said and quiet so responsibility came to roxanne it was she who paid the bills pored over his bank book corresponded with his publishers she was in the kitchen constantly she learned from the nurse how to prepare his meals and after the first month took complete charge of the sick-room she had to let the nurse go for reasons of economy one of the two colored girls left at the same time roxanne was realizing that they had been living from short story to short story the most frequent visitor was harry cromwell he had been shocked and depressed by the news and though his wife was now living with him in chicago he found time to come out several times a month roxanne found his sympathy welcome there was some quality of suffering in the man some inherent pitifulness that made her comfortable when he was near roxanne's nature had suddenly deepened she felt sometimes that with jeffrey she was losing her children also those children that now most of all she needed and should have had it was six months after jeffrey's collapse and when the nightmare had faded leaving not the old world but a new one grayer and colder that she went to see harry's wife finding herself in chicago with an extra hour before train time she decided out of courtesy to call as she stepped inside the door she had an immediate impression that the apartment was very like some place she had been before and almost instantly she remembered the round the corner bakery of her childhood a bakery full of rows and rows of pink frosted cakes a stuffy pink pink as a food pink triumphant vulgar and odious and this apartment was like that it was pink it smelled pink mrs cromwell attired in a wrapper of pink and black opened the door her hair was yellow heightened roxanne imagined by a dash of peroxide in the rinsing water every week her eyes were a thin waxen blue she was pretty and too consciously graceful her cordiality was strident and intimate hostility melted so quickly to hospitality that it seemed they were both merely in the face and voice never touching nor touched by the deep core of egotism beneath but to roxanne these things were secondary her eyes were caught and held in uncanny fascination by the wrapper it was vilely unclean from its lowest hem up four inches it was sheerly dirty with the blue dust of the floor for the next three inches it was gray then it shaded off into its natural color which was pink it was dirty at the sleeves too and at the collar and when the woman turned to lead the way into the parlor roxanne was sure that her neck was dirty a one-sided rattle of conversation began 
mrs cromwell became explicit about her likes and dislikes her head her stomach her teeth her apartment avoiding with a sort of insolent meticulousness any inclusion of roxanne with life as if presuming that roxanne having been dealt a blow wished life to be carefully skirted roxanne smiled that kimono that neck after five minutes a little boy toddled into the parlor a dirty little boy clad in dirty pink rompers his face was smudgy roxanne wanted to take him into her lap and wipe his nose other parts of his head needed attention his tiny shoes were kicked out at the toes unspeakable what a darling little boy exclaimed roxanne smiling radiantly come here to me mrs cromwell looked coldly at her son he will get dirty look at that face she held her head on one side and regarded it critically isn't he a darling repeated roxanne look at his rompers frowned mrs cromwell he needs a change don't you george george stared at her curiously to his mind the word rompers connotated a garment extraneously smeared as this one i tried to make him look respectable this morning complained mrs cromwell as one whose patience had been sorely tried and i found he didn't have any more rompers so rather than have him go around without any i put him back in those and his face how many pairs has he roxanne's voice was pleasantly curious how many feather fans have you she might have asked oh mrs cromwell considered wrinkling her pretty brow five i think plenty i know you can get them for fifty cents a pair mrs cromwell's eyes showed surprise and the faintest superiority the price of rompers can you really i had no idea he ought to have plenty but i haven't had a minute all week to send the laundry out then dismissing the subject as irrelevant i must show you some things they rose and roxanne followed her past an open bathroom door whose garment littered floor showed indeed that the laundry hadn't been sent out for some time into another room that was so to speak the quintessence of pinkness it was mrs cromwell's room here the hostess opened a closet door and displayed before roxanne's eyes an amazing collection of lingerie there were dozens of filmy marvels of lace and silk all clean unruffled seemingly not yet touched on hangers beside them were three new evening dresses i have some beautiful things said mrs cromwell but not much of a chance to wear them harry doesn't care about going out spite crept into her voice he's perfectly content to let me play nursemaid and housekeeper all day and loving wife in the evening roxanne smiled again you've got some beautiful clothes here yes i have let me show you beautiful repeated roxanne interrupting but i'll have to run if i'm going to catch my train she felt that her hands were trembling she wanted to put them on this woman and shake her shake her she wanted her locked up somewhere and set to scrubbing floors beautiful she repeated and i just came in for a moment well i'm sorry harry isn't here they moved toward the door and oh said roxanne with an effort yet her voice was still gentle and her lips were smiling i think it's argyle's where you can get those rompers good-bye it was not until she had reached the station and bought her ticket to marlowe that roxanne realized it was the first five minutes in six months that her mind had been off jeffrey four a week later harry appeared at marlowe arrived unexpectedly at five o'clock and coming up the walk sank into a porch chair in a state of exhaustion roxanne herself had had a busy day and was worn out the doctors were coming at five thirty bringing a celebrated nerve specialist from new york 
she was excited and thoroughly depressed but harry's eyes made her sit down beside him what's the matter nothing roxanne he denied i came to see how jeff was doing don't you bother about me harry insisted roxanne there's something the matter nothing he repeated how's jeff anxiety darkened her face he's a little worse harry dr jewett has come on from new york they thought he could tell me something definite he's going to try and find whether this paralysis has anything to do with the original blood clot harry rose oh i'm sorry he said jerkily i didn't know you expected a consultation i wouldn't have come i thought i'd just rock on your porch for an hour sit down she commanded harry hesitated sit down harry dear boy her kindness flooded out now enveloped him i know there's something the matter you're white as a sheet i'm going to get you a cool bottle of beer all at once he collapsed into his chair and covered his face with his hands i can't make her happy he said slowly i've tried and i've tried this morning we had some words about breakfast i'd been getting my breakfast downtown and well just after i went to the office she left the house went east to her mother's with george in a suitcase full of lace underwear harry and i don't know there was a crunch on the gravel a car turning into the drive roxanne uttered a little cry it's dr jewett oh i'll you'll wait won't you she interrupted abstractedly he saw that his problem had already died on the troubled surface of her mind there was an embarrassing minute of vague elated instructions and then harry followed the party inside and watched them disappear up the stairs he went into the library and sat down on the big sofa for an hour he watched the sun creep up the patterned folds of the chintz curtains in the deep quiet a trapped wasp buzzing on the inside of the window-pane assumed the proportions of a clamour from time to time another buzzing drifted down from upstairs resembling several more larger wasps caught on larger window-panes he heard low footfalls the clink of bottles the clamour of pouring water what had he and roxanne done that life should deal these crashing blows to them upstairs there was taking place a living inquest on the soul of his friend he was sitting here in a quiet room listening to the plaint of a wasp just as when he was a boy he had been compelled by a strict aunt to sit hour-long on a chair and atone for some misbehavior but who had put him here what ferocious aunt had leaned out of the sky to make him atone for what about kitty he felt a great hopelessness she was too expensive that was the irremediable difficulty suddenly he hated her he wanted to throw her down and kick at her to tell her she was a cheat and a leech that she was dirty moreover she must give him his boy he rose and began pacing up and down the room simultaneously he heard someone begin walking along the hallway upstairs in exact time with him he found himself wondering if they would walk in time until the person reached the end of the hall kitty had gone to her mother god help her what a mother to go to he tried to imagine the meeting the abused wife collapsing upon the mother's breast he could not that kitty was capable of any deep grief was unbelievable he had gradually grown to think of her as something unapproachable and callous she would get a divorce of course and eventually she would marry again he began to consider this whom would she marry he laughed bitterly stopped a picture flashed before him of kitty's arms around some man whose face he could not see of kitty's lips pressed close to other lips in what was surely passion 
god he cried aloud god 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 then the pictures came thick and fast the kitty of this morning faded the soiled kimono rolled up and disappeared the pouts and rages and tears were all washed away again she was kitty carr kitty carr with yellow hair and great baby eyes ah she had loved him she had loved him after a time he perceived that something was amiss with him something that had nothing to do with kitty or jeff something of a different genre amazingly it burst on him at last he was hungry simple enough he would go into the kitchen in a moment and ask the colored cook for a sandwich after that he must go back to the city he paused at the wall jerked at something round and fingering it absently put it to his mouth and tasted it as a baby tastes a bright toy his teeth closed on it ah she'd left that damn kimono that dirty pink kimono she might have had the decency to take it with her he thought it would hang in the house like the corpse of their sick alliance he would try to throw it away but he would never be able to bring himself to move it it would be like kitty soft and pliable withal impervious you couldn't move kitty you couldn't reach kitty there was nothing there to reach he understood that perfectly he had understood it all along he reached to the wall for another biscuit and with an effort pulled it out nail and all he carefully removed the nail from the centre wondering idly if he had eaten the nail with the first biscuit preposterous he would have remembered it was a huge nail he felt his stomach he must be very hungry he considered remembered yesterday he had had no dinner it was the girl's day out and kitty had lain in her room eating chocolate drops she had said she felt smothery and couldn't bear having him near her he had given george a bath and put him to bed and then lain down on the couch intending to rest a minute before getting his own dinner there he had fallen asleep and awakened about eleven to find that there was nothing in the ice-box except a spoonful of potato salad this he had eaten together with some chocolate drops that he found on kitty's bureau this morning he had breakfasted hurriedly downtown before going to the office but at noon beginning to worry about kitty he had decided to go home and take her out to lunch after that there had been the note on his pillow the pile of lingerie in the closet was gone and she had left instructions for sending her trunk he had never been so hungry he thought at five o'clock when the visiting nurse tiptoed downstairs he was sitting on the sofa staring at the carpet mr cromwell yes oh mrs curtain won't be able to see you at dinner she's not well she told me to tell you that the cook will fix you something and that there's a spare bedroom she's sick you say she's lying down in her room the consultation is just over did they did they decide anything yes said the nurse softly dr jewett says there's no hope mr curtain may live indefinitely but he'll never see again or move again or think he'll just breathe just breathe yes for the first time the nurse noted that beside the writing desk where she remembered that she had seen a line of dozen curious round objects she had vaguely imagined to be some exotic form of decoration there was now only one where the others had been there was now a series of little nail holes harry followed her glance dazedly and then rose to his feet i don't believe i'll stay i believe there's a train she nodded harry picked up his hat good-bye she said pleasantly good-bye he answered as though talking to himself and evidently moved by some involuntary necessity he paused on his way to the door 
and she saw him pluck the last object from the wall and drop it into his pocket then he opened the screen door and descending the porch steps passed out of her sight five after a while the coat of clean white paint on the jeffrey curtain house made a definite compromise with the suns of many julys and showed its good faith by turning gray it scaled huge peelings of very brittle old paint leaned over backward like aged men practicing grotesque gymnastics and finally dropped to a moldy death in the overgrown grass beneath the paint on the front pillars became streaky the white ball was knocked off the left-hand doorpost the green blinds darkened then lost all pretense of color it began to be a house that was avoided by the tender-minded some church bought a lot diagonally opposite for a graveyard and this combined with the place where mrs curtain stays with that living corpse was enough to throw a ghostly aura over that quarter of the road not that she was left alone men and women came to see her met her downtown where she went to do her marketing brought her home in their cars and came in for a moment to talk and rest in the glamour that still played in her smile but men who did not know her no longer followed her with admiring glances in the street a diaphanous veil had come down over her beauty destroying its vividness yet bringing neither wrinkles nor fat she acquired a character in the village a group of little stories were told of her how when the country was frozen over one winter so that no wagons nor automobiles could travel she taught herself to skate so that she could make quick time to the grocer and druggist and not leave geoffrey alone for long it was said that every night since his paralysis she slept in a small bed beside his bed holding his hand geoffrey curtain was spoken of as though he were already dead as the years dropped by those who had known him died or moved away there were but half a dozen of the old crowd who had drunk cocktails together called each other's wives by their first names and thought that jeff was about the wittiest and most talented fellow that marlowe had ever known how to the casual visitor he was merely the reason that mrs curtain excused herself sometimes and hurried upstairs he was a groan or a sharp cry borne to the silent parlour on the heavy air of a sunday afternoon he could not move he was stone-blind dumb and totally unconscious all day he lay in his bed except for a shift to his wheelchair every morning while she straightened the room his paralysis was creeping slowly toward his heart at first for the first year roxanne had received the faintest answering pressure sometimes when she held his hand then it had gone ceased one evening and never come back and through two nights roxanne lay wide-eyed staring into the dark and wondering what had gone what fraction of his soul had taken flight what last grain of comprehension those shattered broken nerves still carried to the brain after that hope died had it not been for her unceasing care the last spark would have gone long before every morning she shaved and bathed him shifted him with her own hands from bed to chair and back to bed she was in his room constantly bearing medicine straightening a pillow talking to him almost as one talks to a nearly human dog without hope of response or appreciation but with the dim persuasion of habit a prayer when faith has gone not a few people one celebrated nerve specialist among them gave her a plain impression that it was futile to exercise so much care that if geoffrey had been conscious he would have wished to die that if his spirit were hovering in some wider air it would agree to no such sacrifice from her it would fret only for the prison of its body to give it full release 
but you see she replied shaking her head gently when i married geoffrey it was until i ceased to love him but was protested in effect you can't love that i can love what it once was what else is there for me to do the specialist shrugged his shoulders and went away to say that mrs curtain was a remarkable woman and just about as sweet as an angel but he added it was a terrible pity there must be some man or a dozen just crazy to take care of her casually there were here and there someone began in hope and ended in reverence there was no love in the woman except strangely enough for life for the people in the world from the tramp to whom she gave food she could ill afford to the butcher who sold her a cheap cut of steak across the meaty board the other phase was sealed up somewhere in that expressionless mummy who lay with his face turned ever toward the light as mechanically as a compass needle and waited dumbly for the last wave to crash over his heart after eleven years he died in the middle of a may night when the scent of the syringa hung upon the window-sill and a breeze wafted in the shrillings of the frogs and cicadas outside roxanne awoke at two and realized with a start she was alone in the house at last six after that she sat on her weather-beaten porch through many afternoons gazing down across the fields that undulated in a slow descent to the white and green town she was wondering what she would do with her life she was thirty-six handsome strong and free the years had eaten up geoffrey's insurance she had reluctantly parted with the acres to right and left of her and had even placed a small mortgage on the house with her husband's death had come a great physical restlessness she missed having to take care of him in the morning she missed her rush to town and the brief and therefore accentuated neighborly meetings in the butchers and grocers she missed the cooking for two the preparation of delicate liquid food for him one day consumed with energy she went out and spaded up the whole garden a thing that had not been done for years and she was alone at night in the room that had seen the glory of her marriage and then the pain to meet jeff again she went back in spirit to that wonderful year that intense passionate absorption and companionship rather than looked forward to a problematical meeting hereafter she awoke often to lie and wish for that presence beside her inanimate yet breathing still jeff one afternoon six months after his death she was sitting on the porch in a black dress which took away the faintest suggestion of plumpness from her figure it was indian summer golden brown all about her a hush broken by the sighing of leaves westward a four o'clock sun dripping streaks of red and yellow over a flaming sky most of the birds had gone only a sparrow that had built itself a nest on the cornice of a pillar kept up an intermittent cheeping varied by occasional fluttering sallies overhead roxanne moved her chair to where she could watch him and her mind idled drowsily on the bosom of the afternoon harry cromwell was coming out from chicago to dinner since his divorce over eight years before he had been a frequent visitor they had kept up what amounted to a tradition between them when he arrived they would go to look at jeff harry would sit down on the edge of the bed and in a hearty voice ask well jeff old man how do you feel today roxanne standing beside would look intently at jeff dreaming that some shadowy recognition of this former friend had passed across that broken mind but the head pale carven would only move slowly in its sole gesture toward the light as if something behind the blind eyes were groping for another light long since gone out 
these visits stretched over eight years at easter christmas thanksgiving and on many a sunday harry had arrived paid his call on jeff and then talked for a long while with roxanne on the porch he was devoted to her he made no pretense of hiding no attempt to deepen this relation she was his best friend as the mass of flesh on the bed there had been his best friend she was peace she was rest she was the past of his own tragedy she alone knew he had been at the funeral but since then the company for which he worked had shifted him to the east and only a business trip had brought him to the vicinity of chicago roxanne had written to him come when he could after a night in the city he had caught a train out they shook hands and he helped her move two rockers together how's george he's fine roxanne seems to like school of course it was the only thing to do to send him of course you miss him horribly harry yes i do miss him he's a funny boy he talked a lot about george roxanne was interested harry must bring him out on his next vacation she had only seen him once in her life a child in dirty rompers she left him with the newspaper while she prepared dinner she had four chops to-night and some late vegetables from her own garden she put it all on and then called him and sitting down together they continued their talk about george if i had a child she would say afterward harry having given her what slender advice he could about investments they walked through the garden pausing here and there to recognize what had once been a cement bench or where the tennis court had lain do you remember then they were off on a flood of reminiscences the day they had taken all the snapshots and jeff had been photographed astride the calf and the sketch harry had made of jeff and roxanne lying sprawled in the grass their heads almost touching there was to have been a covered lattice connecting the barn studio with the house so that jeff could get there on wet days the lattice had been started but nothing remained except a broken triangular piece that still adhered to the house and resembled a battered chicken coop and those mint juleps and jeff's notebook do you remember how we'd laugh harry when we'd get it out of his pocket and read aloud a page of material and how frantic he used to get wild he was such a kid about his writing they were both silent a moment and then harry said we were to have a place out here too do you remember we were to buy the adjoining twenty acres and the parties we were going to have again there was a pause broken this time by a low question from roxanne do you ever hear of her harry why yes he admitted placidly she's in seattle she's married again to a man named horton a sort of lumber king he is a great deal older than she is i believe and she's behaving yes that is i've heard so she has everything you see nothing much to do except dress up for this fellow at dinner-time i see without effort he changed the subject are you going to keep the house i think so she said nodding i've lived here so long harry it'd seem terrible to move i thought of trained nursing but of course that'd mean leaving i've about decided to be a boarding-house lady live in one no keep one is there such an anomaly as a boarding-house lady anyway i'd have a negress and keep about eight people in the summer and two or three if i can get them in the winter of course i'll have to have the house repainted and gone over inside harry considered roxanne why naturally you know best what you can do but it does seem a shock roxanne you came here as a bride perhaps she said that's why i don't mind remaining here as a boarding-house lady 
i remember a certain batch of biscuits oh those biscuits she cried still from all i heard about the way you devoured them they couldn't have been so bad i was so low that day yet somehow i laughed when the nurse told me about those biscuits i noticed that the twelve nail holes are still on the library wall where jeff drove them yes it was getting very dark now a crispness settled in the air a little gust of wind sent down a last spray of leaves roxanne shivered slightly we'd better go in he looked at his watch it's late i've got to be leaving i go east tomorrow. must you they lingered for a moment just below the stoop watching a moon that seemed full of snow float out of the distance where the lake lay summer was gone and now indian summer the grass was cold and there was no mist and no dew after he left she would go in and light the gas and close the shutters he would go down the path and on to the village to these two life had come quickly and gone leaving not bitterness but pity not disillusion but only pain there was already enough moonlight when they shook hands for each to see the gathered kindness in the other's eyes end of section eleven read by don w jenkins rancho san diego california shaggybark.blogspot.com Section 12 of Tales of the Jazz Age by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Don W. Jenkins. Mr. Icky, the quintessence of quaintness in one act. The scene is the exterior of a cottage in West Isaacshire on a desperately Arcadian afternoon in August. Mr. Icky, quaintly dressed in the costume of an Elizabethan peasant, is pottering and doddering among the pots and dods he is an old man well past the prime of life no longer young from the fact that there is a burr in his speech and that he has absent-mindedly put on his coat wrong side out we surmise that he is either above or below the ordinary superficialities of life near him on the grass lies peter a little boy peter of course has his chin on his palm like the pictures of the young sir walter raleigh he has a complete set of features including serious sombre even funereal gray eyes and radiates that alluring air of never having eaten food this air can best be radiated during the afterglow of a beef dinner he is looking at mr icky fascinated silence the song of birds peter often at night i sit at my window and regard the stars sometimes i think they're my stars gravely i think i shall be a star some day mr icky whimsically yes 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 peter i know them all venus mars neptune gloria swanson mr icky i don't take no stock in astronomy i've been thinking a lunnon laddie and calling to mind my daughter who has gone for to be a typewriter he sighs peter i liked Olsa, mr icky she was so plump so round so buxom mr icky not worth the paper she was padded with laddie he stumbles over a pile of pots and dods peter how is your asthma mr icky mr icky worse thank god gloomily i'm a hundred years old i'm getting brittle peter i suppose life has been pretty tame since you gave up petty arson 
mr icky yes yes you see peter laddie when i was fifty i reformed once in prison peter you went wrong again mr icky worse than that the week before my term expired they insisted on transferring to me the glands of a healthy young prisoner they were executing peter and it renovated you mr icky renovated me it put the old nick back into me this young criminal was evidently a suburban burglar and a kleptomaniac what was a little playful arson in comparison peter awed how ghastly science is the bunk mr icky sighing i got him pretty well subdued now tisn't everyone who has to tire out two sets of glands in his lifetime i wouldn't take another set for all the animal spirits in an orphan asylum peter considering i shouldn't think you'd object to a nice quiet old clergyman's set mr icky clergymen haven't got glands they have souls there is a low sonorous honking off stage to indicate that a large motor-car has stopped in the immediate vicinity then a young man handsomely attired in a dress suit and a patent leather silk hat comes on to the stage he is very mundane his contrast to the spirituality of the other two is observable as far back as the first row of the balcony this is rodney divine divine i'm looking for ulsa icky mr icky rises and stands tremulously between two gods mr icky my daughter is in london divine she has left london she is coming here i have followed her he reaches into the little mother-of-pearl satchel that hangs at his side for cigarettes he selects one and scratching a match touches it to the cigarette the cigarette instantly lights divine i shall wait he waits several hours pass there is no sound except an occasional cackle or hiss from the dods as they quarrel among themselves several songs can be introduced here or some card tricks by divine or a tumbling act as desired divine it's very quiet here mr icky yes very quiet suddenly a loudly dressed girl appears she is very worldly it is ulsa icky on her is one of those shapeless faces peculiar to early italian painting ulsa in a coarse worldly voice Feather, here i am ulsa did what mr icky tremulously ulsa little ulsa they embrace each other's torsos mr icky hopefully you're coming back to help with the ploughing ulsa sullenly no father ploughing such a bather i'd rather not though her accent is broad the content of her speech is sweet and clean divine conciliatingly see here ulsa let's come to an understanding he advances toward her with the graceful even stride that made him captain of the striding team at cambridge ulsa you will say it would be jack mr icky what does she mean divine kindly my dear of course it would be jack it couldn't be frank mr icky frank who ulsa it would be frank some risque joke can be introduced here mr icky whimsically no good fighting no good fighting divine reaching out to stroke her arm with the powerful movement that made him stroke of the crew at oxford you'd better marry me ulsa scornfully why they wouldn't let me in through the servants entrance of your house divine angrily 
they wouldn't never fear you shall come in through the mistress entrance ulsa sir divine in confusion i beg your pardon you know what i mean mr icky aching with whimsy you want to marry my little ulsa divine i do mr icky your record is clean divine excellent i have the best constitution in the world ulsa and the worst bylaws divine at eton i was a member at pop at rugby i belonged to near beer as a younger son i was destined for the police force mr icky skip that have you money divine wads of it i should expect also to go downtown in sections every morning in two rolls royces i have also a kitty car and a converted tank i have seats at the opera ulsa sullenly i can't sleep except in a box and i've heard that you are cashiered from your club mr icky a cashier divine hanging his head i was cashiered ulsa what for divine almost inaudibly i hid the polo balls one day for a joke mr icky is your mind in good shape divine gloomily fair after all what is brilliance merely the tact to sow when no one is looking and reap when everyone is mr icky be careful i will not marry my daughter to an epigram divine more gloomily i assure you i'm a mere platitude i often descend to the level of an innate idea also dully none of what you're seeing matters i can't marry a man who thinks it would be jack why frank would divine interrupting nonsense also emphatically you're a fool mr icky tut, tut. one should not judge charity my girl what was it nero said with malice toward none and charity toward all peter that wasn't nero that was john drinkwater mr icky come who is this frank who is jack divine morosely gotch ulsa dempsey divine we were arguing that if they were deadly enemies and locked in a room together which one would come out alive now i claimed that jack dempsey would take one ulsa angrily rot he wouldn't have a divine quickly you win ulsa then i love you again mr icky so i'm going to lose my little daughter ulsa you still got a house full of children charles ulsa's brother coming out of the cottage he is dressed as if to go to sea a coil of rope is slung about his shoulder and an anchor is hanging from his neck charles not seeing them i'm going to see i'm going to see his voice is triumphant mr icky sadly you went to seed long ago charles i've been reading conrad peter dreamily conrad ah two years before the mast by henry james charles what peter walter pater's version of robinson crusoe charles to his father i can't stay here and rot with you i want to live my life i want to hunt eels mr icky i will be here when you come back charles contemptuously why the worms are licking their chops already when they hear your name it will be noticed that some of the characters have not spoken for some time it will improve the technique if they can be rendering a spirited saxophone number mr icky mournfully these vales these hills these mccormick harvesters they mean nothing to my children i understand charles more gently 
then you'll think of me kindly feyther to understand is to forgive mr icky no no we never forgive those we can understand we can only forgive those who wound us for no reason at all charles impatiently well, i'm so beastly sick of your human nature line and anyway i hate the hours around here several dozen more of mr icky's children trip out of the house trip over the grass and trip over the pots and dods they are muttering we are going away and we're leaving you mr icky his heart breaking they're all deserting me i've been too kind spare the rod and spoil the fun oh for the glands of a bismarck there is a honking outside probably divine's chauffeur growing impatient for his master mr icky in misery they do not love the soil they have been faithless to the great potato tradition he picks up a handful of soil passionately and rubs it on his bald head hair sprouts oh wordsworth wordsworth how true you spoke no motion has she now no force she does not hear or feel rolled around on earth's diurnal course in someone's oldsmobile they all groan and shouting life and jazz move slowly toward the wings charles back to the soil yes i've been trying to turn my back to the soil for ten years another child the farmers may be the backbone of the country but who wants to be a backbone another child i care not who hoes the lettuce of my country if i can eat the salad all life psychic research jazz mr icky struggling with himself i must be quaint that's all there is it's not life that counts it's the quaintness you bring to it all we're going to slide down the riviera we've got tickets for piccadilly circus life jazz mr icky wait let me read to you from the bible let me open it at random one always finds something that bears on the situation he finds a bible lying in one of the dods and opening it at random begins to read ahab estimo and on him gosen and olen and gilo eleven cities and their villages arab and ruma and esau charles cruelly buy ten more rings and try again mr icky trying again how beautiful art thou my love how beautiful art thou thy eyes are dove's eyes besides what is hid within thy hair is as flocks of goats which come up from mount galad hm rather a coarse passage his children laugh at him rudely shouting jazz and all life is primarily suggestive mr icky despondently it won't work to-day hopefully maybe it's damp he feels it yes it's damp there was water in the dod it won't work all it's damp it won't work jazz one of the children come we must catch the six-thirty any other cue may be inserted here mr icky good-bye they all go out mr icky is left alone he sighs and walking over to the cottage steps lies down and closes his eyes twilight has come down and the stage is flooded with such light as never was on land or sea there is no sound except a sheepherder's wife in the distance playing an aria from beethoven's tenth symphony on a mouth-organ the great white and gray moths swoop down and light on the old man until he is completely covered by them but he does not stir the curtain goes up and down several times to denote the lapse of several minutes a good comedy effect can be obtained by having mr icky cling to the curtain and go up and down with it 
fireflies or fairies on wires can also be introduced at this point then peter appears a look of almost imbecile sweetness on his face in his hand he clutches something and from time to time glances at it in a transport of ecstasy after a struggle with himself he lays it on the old man's body and then quietly withdraws the moths chatter among themselves and then scurry away in sudden fright and as night deepens there still sparkles there small white and round breathing a subtle perfume to the west isaacshire breeze peter's gift of love a moth-ball the play can end at this point or can go on indefinitely end of section twelve read by don w jenkins rancho san diego california shaggybark.blogspot.com section thirteen of tales of the jazz age by f scott fitzgerald this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by don w jenkins jemina the mountain girl this don't pretend to be literature this is just the tale for red-blooded folks who want a story and not just a lot of psychological stuff or analysis boy you'll love it read it here see it in the movies play it on the phonograph run it through the sewing machine a wild thing it was night in the mountains of kentucky wild hills rose on all sides swift mountain streams flowed rapidly up and down the mountains jemina tantrum was down at the stream brewing whiskey at the family still she was a typical mountain girl her feet were bare her hands large and powerful hung down below her knees her face showed the ravages of work although but sixteen she had for over a dozen years been supporting her aged pappy and mappy by brewing mountain whiskey from time to time she would pause in her task and filling a dipper full of the pure invigorating liquid would drain it off then pursue her work with renewed vigour she would place the rye in the vat thresh it out with her feet and in twenty minutes the completed product would be turned out a sudden cry made her pause in the act of draining a dipper and look up hello said a man it came from a man clad in hunting boots reaching to his neck who had emerged can you tell me the way to the tantrums cabin are you uns from the settlements down there she pointed her hand down to the bottom of the hill where louisville lay she had never been there but once before she was born her great-grandfather old gore tantrum had gone into the settlements in the company of two marshals and had never come back so the tantrums from generation to generation had learned to dread civilization the man was amused he laughed a light tinkling laugh the laugh of a philadelphian something in the ring of it thrilled her she drank off another dipper of whiskey where is mr tantrum little girl he asked not without kindness she raised her foot and pointed her big toe toward the woods thar in the caving behind those thar pines old tantrum here my old man the man from the settlements thanked her and strode off he was fairly vibrant with youth and personality as he walked along he whistled and sang and turned handsprings and flapjacks breathing in the fresh cool air of the mountains the air around the still was like wine jemina tantrum watched him entranced no one like him had ever come into her life before she sat down on the grass and counted her toes she counted eleven she had learned arithmetic in the mountain school a mountain feud ten years before a lady from the settlements had opened a school on the mountain 
jemina had no money but she had paid her way in whisky bringing a pail full to school every morning and leaving it on miss lafarge's desk miss lafarge had died of delirium tremens after a year's teaching and so jemina's education had stopped across the still stream still another still was standing it was that of the doldrums the doldrums and the tantrums never exchanged calls they hated each other fifty years before old jem doldrum and old jem tantrum had quarrelled in the tantrum cabin over a game of slapjack jem doldrum had thrown the king of hearts in jem tantrum's face and old tantrum enraged had felled the old doldrum with the nine of diamonds other doldrums and tantrums had joined in and the little cabin was soon filled with flying cards harstrom doldrum one of the younger doldrums lay stretched on the floor writhing in agony the ace of hearts crammed down his throat jim tantrum standing in the doorway ran through suit after suit his face alight with fiendish hatred old mappy tantrum stood on the table wetting down the doldrums with hot whiskey old heck doldrum having finally run out of trumps was backed out of the cabin striking left and right with his tobacco pouch and gathering around him the rest of his clan they mounted their steers and galloped furiously home that night old man doldrum and his sons vowing vengeance had returned put a tick-tock on the tantrum window stuck a pin in the doorbell and beaten a retreat a week later the tantrums had put cod liver oil in the doldrums still and so from year to year the feud had continued first one family being entirely wiped out then the other the birth of love every day little jemina worked the still on her side of the stream and bosco doldrum worked the still on his side sometimes with automatic inherited hatred the feudists would throw whiskey at each other and jemina would come home smelling like a french table d'hote but now jemina was too thoughtful to look across the stream how wonderful the stranger had been and how oddly he was dressed in her innocent way she had never believed that there were any civilized settlements at all and she had put the belief in them down to the credulity of the mountain people she turned to go up to the cabin and as she turned something struck her in the neck it was a sponge thrown by bosco doldrum a sponge soaked in whiskey from his still on the other side of the stream hi there bosco doldrum she shouted in her deep bass voice yo jemina tantrum gosh ding yo he returned she continued her way to the cabin the stranger was talking to her father gold had been discovered on the tantrum land and the stranger edgar edison was trying to buy the land for a song he was considering what song to offer she sat upon her hands and watched him he was wonderful when he talked his lips moved she sat upon the stove and watched him suddenly there came a blood-curdling scream the tantrums rushed to the windows it was the doldrums they had hitched their steers to trees and concealed themselves behind the bushes and flowers and soon a perfect rattle of stones and bricks beat against the windows bending them inward father father shrieked jemina her father took down his slingshot from his slingshot rack on the wall and ran his hand lovingly over the elastic band he stepped to a loophole old mappy tantrum stepped to the coal hole a mountain battle the stranger was aroused at last furious to get at the doldrums he tried to escape from the house by crawling up the chimney then he thought there might be a door under the bed but jemina told him there was not he hunted for doors under the beds and sofas but each time jemina pulled him out and told him there were no doors there furious with anger he beat upon the door and hollered at the doldrums 
they did not answer him but kept up their fusillade of bricks and stones against the window old pappy tantrum knew that just as soon as they were able to effect an aperture they would pour in and the fight would be over then old heck doldrum foaming at the mouth and expectorating on the ground left and right led the attack the terrific slingshots of pappy tantrum had not been without their effect a master shot had disabled one doldrum and another doldrum shot almost incessantly through the abdomen fought feebly on nearer and nearer they approached the house we must fly shouted the stranger to jemina i will sacrifice myself and bear you away no shouted pappy tantrum his face begrimed you stay here and fit on i will bar jemina away i will bar mappy away i will bar myself away the man from the settlements pale and trembling with anger turned to ham tantrum who stood at the door throwing loophole after loophole at the advancing doldrums will you cover the retreat but ham said that he too had tantrums to bear away but that he would leave himself here to help the stranger cover the retreat if he could think of a way of doing it soon smoke began to filter through the door and ceiling shem doldrum had come up and touched a match to old japhet tantrum's breath as he leaned from a loophole and the alcoholic flame shot up on all sides the whiskey in the bathtub caught fire the walls began to fall in jemina and the man from the settlements looked at each other jemina he whispered stranger she answered we will die together he said if we had lived i would have taken you to the city and married you with your ability to hold liquor your social success could have been assured she caressed him idly for a moment counting her toes softly to herself the smoke grew thicker her left leg was on fire she was a human alcohol lamp their lips met in one long kiss and then a wall fell on them and blotted them out as one when the doldrums burst through the ring of flame they found them dead where they had fallen their arms about each other old jem doldrum was moved he took off his hat he filled it with whiskey and drank it off they are dead he said slowly they hankered after each other the fit is over now we must not part them so they threw them together into the stream and the two splashes they made were as one end of section thirteen end of tales of the jazz age by f scott fitzgerald read by don w jenkins rancho san diego california shaggybark.blogspot.com